welcome to episode 71 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we're playing it, we will be talking about it. Today, we are recording on February 27th, 2018. My name is Corey Motley. I am a staff writer at GameCritics.com, and I am 50% of the show. Joining me, as always, is Brad Galloway. He is the editor of Game Critics. How are you, Brad? I am doing wonderful, and I'm happy to be recording, sir. Good. Me too. I am glad to be here. We just had a rousing one-hour banter discussion. Oh, (laughs) one-hour-plus mega banter, dude. Mega banter. Yeah, it was a lot. My... my, uh, the thought of me editing that later kind of makes me want to cry a little bit, but here we are. <laughs> All right, but we have some games to talk about tonight. Um, we also have some, I mean, I was going to say some not games, but we actually just have topics about games to talk about tonight. Um, Brad, is there anything you want to jump in on? Or do you want to jump right into this article piece about game preservation or something else first? I think we should just jump ahead. I mean, we got a pretty significant, like, non-games uh, portion for people to listen to. We should just get into the meat of things here, if that's all right. All right, let's do it. So Brad sent me an article. I already can't remember what website. No. Was it Ars Technica? <laughs> was that it? Uh, I think it was Gama Sutra. Hold on ah, a second. Th- <laughs> Ars Technica. Yeah, no, you're right. Ars Technica. You're okay. Right. You got it. Uh, you got it. I remember that Kyle Orland wrote it, but I did not remember. Oh, he what did. It was. Um, Kyle Orland wrote this. Hey, Kyle Orland, former Game Critics staff member. Kyle Orland. Uh, hmm. Um. Well, he wrote. I'm not even going to try to summarize this article because I thought it was really confusing and kind of not super duper well written. So I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna hand it over to you so you can summarize this whole piece for us, and then we can discuss. Interesting. Okay, I want to talk about that because uh, I would like to talk about why you think it's not well written because that's interesting to me as an from an editor editorial editorializing whatever perspective. Here's the summary of the article, though. Uh, The title of it was Game Industry Pushes Back Against Efforts to Restore Gameplay Servers. Uh, So in a nutshell, what this was about, and this is something that has been on my mind for a while and has been on a lot of people's minds. Uh, Specifically, uh, an issue that has been going on is that people want to start, like like when a game server goes down, if there's an online game, a multiplayer, MMO, anything that uses online, something that uses like a central server in order to play, when those games go offline, that very often means that whatever game that is just dies. Like, it's no longer functional. You can't jump into it. They're like, it just, it just vanishes. And so a lot of people, uh, researchers and archivists, are saying, hey, you guys, like, this is media. This is really important. We preserve books. We preserve movies. We preserve uh, music. Why are we not preserving games? We're just letting this stuff just, like, vanish. So they want to uh, ask the courts to give them permission to have servers be active but for these servers to not be run by the companies who made the game, but by to be run by museums or archivists in order to preserve the gameplay of these games. Uh, and not to keep them running for public consumption, but, but just to somehow have these games not disappear. And so the ESA, uh, the Ed- Entertainment Software Association, who I am uh, increasingly becoming convinced of as a bunch of Nazi fucking bastards, uh, <laughs> they were very much, just side note, they were very much in favor of the tax cut that Trump gave to everybody, which is like a full-on... Uh, uh, travesty. Uh, they were in support of that, which I was very disappointed to see. Anyway, um, they're now saying that they don't want anybody to do this because of potential copyright infringement, because they feel like people who are not copyright owners should not be able to run a server, because they feel like having these servers up and running after the games have already gone dark 
is somehow going to cause some people to lose money and that they don't think that anybody has the right to do this because they don't believe anybody has any interest in studying these games. They think they just want to keep these servers running because people like to play them. Uh, so there's a lot of issues involved with this article, but I think the basic issue, for me anyway, is about preserving history and archiving what we have done as a culture. Uh, like I said at the top, we save movies and books and music and the thing, art and things that we do because we see that there's value in those and we can also learn from them. Uh, I'm very disappointed and saddened to see that the ESA apparently does not feel that way. They do not think that there is a value in preserving these things. And so I'm a little bit shocked by that, a little dismayed. And I do think, um, for me anyway, I think that if a, if a company lets their servers go dark, they abandon these games, these games are done, they are no longer selling these games, these games are basically turned into like vaporware, they're all finished. I don't see any problem with letting archivists and researchers maintain a copy of those servers or a copy of the code in order to study and do research. Um, now, I'm not saying that they can like turn all these things into free-to-play games or make a profit off them. I'm saying for research purposes to, to maintain a sort of like a, like a library of Congress, if you will, um, for games that people have created in the past. So that's where I kind of come from. I'm very disappointed to see that the ESA is not in favor of that. And the lawsuit, I guess, is moving forward. Um, it's the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment is on one side and the ESA is on the other. And the decision has not been made yet. They're both uh, presenting big legal arguments about which, which side should prevail, whether the ESA says... Let the games die. Nobody has a right to keep these service runnings. Or uh, made the museum will say, you know, we need to preserve these things because it's human culture and history. So, um, Corey, what do you, what's what's your feeling on this? You have a feeling either way on this? Uh, I mean, I definitely have feelings about it, and I think, I mean, the thing that is fascinating about video games themselves is like, um, you know, like I mean, video games are technically works of art, like. But whenever it comes to, you know, if you categorize, like, video games and movies and music and, you know, like, TV shows and, like, that kind of stuff, like, we're talking about, like, categorizing all these things. Like, I feel like even though all of the above are, uh, you know, technically are, like, businesses, too, like, you know, Hollywood is, you know, the, the movie industry, the business, um, you know, making music, it's a business if you want to sell your albums and everything. We, we think about movies and music and TV shows and stuff like that um, really heavily as art and not as much as business. But when it comes to video games, I think people tend to think about them very much as business first. And then they think about them as art like way after the fact. And I feel like that is what is kind of um, a thing that's kind of like uh, like a wrench in the gears of the situation. Because I... I do think that, you know, video games need to be, um, they need to be preserved, like, it, like, but video games got so popular, and they became so technologically advanced so quickly, that I feel like, like, nobody along the way ever thought about, like, oh, well, should we be preserving these, like, what should we be doing about them, everybody that was in the development sphere, and the publishing sphere was just so hungry to move on to the next, you know, the more powerful thing, the better game, you know, the more, uh, I don't know, development team, the longer game, like, instead of thinking about how they could preserve games themselves. And I mean, I absolutely think that video games are worth preserving, but there's just so many, there's just like so many strange facets about it because you were, we have discussions about preserving the original games. We have discussions about how to preserve them, uh, you know, how, 
uh, like how that will affect like HD re-releases because there's such a big, you know, market for re-releases. And that was one of the ESA's things is like, well, if we're like actively, uh, you know, uh, like uh, keeping these games on file or in museums or something, then like maybe that'll uh, decrease sales for like HD re-releases or like re-releases of games. And also the ESA is concerned about if games are being preserved that they're going to, because like the big thing about um, uh, the museum, I can't remember what it is, but their M-A-D-E, I think is their. Um, yeah, 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 right. Like their big thing is that they want to preserve these for like scholarly work for people that are in like undergraduate school or graduate school so that they can like play them and study them and use them in like tests and use them in like cases and stuff like that. And the ESA is concerned that that's going to end up turning these games back into things that are going to become profitable, but because they're not in charge of the service for them anymore, that they're going to lose profit. And that also reflects back on the idea that games exist first and foremost as business and money makers rather than works of meaningful art. And so like, I mean, the, the discussion about them needs to 180 into the fact that video games are indeed art, much like movies, much like paintings, much like music and, uh, you know, stuff like that before we can start talking about business. But for some reason, that's like the, to me, it seems like that's like the big roadblock here is that people consider video games to be business, businesses and money makers first and foremost, and then art like almost as an afterthought. Yeah, and it's difficult, too, because, I mean, I definitely recognize that people have put money into this, they've invested, and they do see this as kind of a business venture. But I think because games are such a new thing and that we are still dealing with, like, how quickly technology is moving. I mean, you paint a painting, it's a painting, and it stays a painting forever, so that's not a problem. You write a book, and even though you may have an ebook, but you still have regular books, and so it's still relatively easy to keep track of those things. But with games, technology is moving so fast, and so many of these things require constant upkeep, constant maintenance... Like, it's so easy for these things to disappear if no one is, like, profiting enough to keep them alive. Um, so I think we're losing a lot of things a lot quicker than we were with other formats. I mean, it's kind of like when movies um, were first a thing. Nobody was saving movies back then. And it wasn't until a great many years after that people were, like, realizing, oh, my God, we've lost so many great movies already. We weren't saving these. You know, oh, my God, we've, like, lost so much. We, we got to stop. And so now people preserve movies. Um but still, they're still like, you know, they're making money for studios, but at the same time, people do recognize that there is inherent art in them. And so, I mean, it's a difficult thing, but I think the wrong answer under any circumstances is no, let it die. No one can ever keep these things. I mean, I think and no matter what the ruling is, these games should be saved in some form. I mean, if the ESA is not going to allow made to keep copies of these, well, then somebody should keep copies of these because I think it's just it's like it's art getting lost. And the thing that really gets me about this is because, you know, I'm a critic, you're a critic, um, you know, I'm also an editor, and I think about this a lot. It's like, when you spend time in video game reviews, and I see this, like, literally, like, every day. When people want to write for me, they they come and they want to be a, a game critic, and that's fine. But, like, being a critic is more than just playing a game and writing your thoughts about it. Like, in order to even have thoughts that are worth reading about that, like, you have to have experience with the medium. You have to, have to spend time, you have to think about games you can't just write something and say, oh, I had fun, uh, 8 out of 10. Like, you have to think about what is its place in canon alongside of other entries in that same genre. Like, what is that genre? What is the history of the genre? Like, what advancements does it show? Like, what innovations does it have? And these things are impossible if you don't have any history to base yourself on. I mean, that would be like saying, hey, I'm going to hire a new movie critic, and this movie critic has only seen movies from the last two years and has ignored, like, the last, like, 123 years of movie making. Or if you, like, if you had a book reviewer 
whose only experience was like last week at Barnes and Noble, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, they could have an opinion, but it's like, it wouldn't be a critical opinion. It wouldn't be an informed opinion. It wouldn't be a worthwhile opinion to read other than the fact that they liked or disliked. But if you want like to have that like wide view, the long view, um, you need to have those things available. And with games disappearing, we are essentially like making the same games over, repeating the same experiences, making the same mistakes. And no one is like really like moving things forward because we keep forgetting what we're doing. And so from a critical perspective, it's just like it. Oh, my God. It's like it's like the biggest tragedy to me that we are not learning. We it's so impossible to like have somebody go and like, quote unquote, do their homework as a critic because a lot of those fucking games don't exist anymore. And so like the idea that people are against these preservation efforts it blows my mind. I mean, it blows my mind for that reason. And also, if these fucking servers have gone dark, no one's maintaining these games. These games are over. They're not... No one's making profit off of these things. Having an archival copy in some university somewhere for research purposes isn't going to hurt anybody. And it's extremely petty to me that the ESA is saying, oh, well, we may we may want to revive this thing in 50 years. Who knows? We never... We, you know, you may, we may want to reissue something. I mean, okay, if that's the case, make a deal about it later on. But like... Like 99.9% .9 of these games are just gone forever. No one's ever going to touch them again. It's just, it's an incredible shame to me. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, I mean, the whole situation is just sticky. I mean, and, and I, I mean, that's kind of the argument that you were just talking about is kind of the one that I have trouble getting behind too, because like, you know, there's the argument of like, oh, well, if, you know, the ESA is like, oh, well, if these games are still kept online, they're going to eventually be made public and it's going to hurt sales for future for future games. Well, it's like, okay, so say, for example, like the new Shadow of the Colossus remake just came out. Like, I'm going to, I mean, I, I haven't looked at hard data on this, so I might be wrong, but I'm going to guess that sales for the original Shadow of the Colossus on PlayStation 2 did not exactly start booming whenever the remake came out because guess fucking what? Everybody wanted to buy the remake. Like, nobody... I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that were like, oh, let me see if I can find this, like, one of, like, 10 used copies of the PlayStation 2 version on eBay so I can go back and play it and see how it feels and, you know, because I would rather play the original. Um, but, I, I mean, it's just, like, it all comes down to money. Like, people want more money and they want to be able to sell these things and they want to pretend, like, that a game is you know, a 30-year-old game is going to end up becoming some ridiculous money-making game whenever somebody puts it in, like, a university archive or something. And it's just, it's just really absurd. It's totally absurd. I mean, I think, I mean, I think so. I mean, I get that argument, though. And I don't want to, like, you know, people have invested money, time, and effort. They made a game. They don't want people to profit off of it for free. As a creator myself, I get that. And I'm sympathetic to it. But I think that having an archival copy in a school or educational setting, which is not open to the public, like, no one is saying we're going to put all these things online for free and we're going to have like a new Netflix of games. Like, like nobody's saying that <laughs> we're just saying, let's just make sure these things don't disappear into the ether at university of Colorado or whatever. Let's keep one server running and people who come here and they're in the games department can study this thing. Like that seems to me like a very reasonable, very limited fair use of uh, a project like that. And also I think that we really need to like update like when things enter the public domain and what fair use even means because technology is moving so fast and I think laws and standards and the government is not able to keep up with it. It's just moving way too fast for any legislators to even understand it, let alone make laws about it. Um, so I think that we, we probably will eventually have to get to some kind of like a, you know, something enters the public domain. I mean, like a book, it's like, I forget what it is. It's like if after a book's been out for like, what, 75 years, then it becomes fair use for anybody. 
uh, maybe something similar to that, like maybe not 75 years, but, you know, something reasonable because the industry moves so fast. I mean, shit's going on sale, like uh, like like Mass Effect, uh, that new one. What was the new one? Andromeda? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. No? yeah. It's, like, it's like five bucks. <laughs> and that just came out last year. So, like, you're not going to tell me you're going to be profiting off of this thing 20 years from now. You know, like, bull fucking shit you are. So, like, if you want that thing to exist, I mean, let a university have it and just make it, you know, for research, for studies. I mean, there's a lot that can be learned from game design, a lot can, that can be learned from... Uh, you know, the sociology of how this game was made, what were the attitudes that went into this, what was the script writing like? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that can be gotten from games. And to let this stuff just disappear, oh my God, it just seems like we're just losing so much. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like one of those situations where it's like, like there's so many things going on in the United States that seem like rational decisions to make that, people are supporting the irrational side of them. And I feel like this is just another one of those situations. Like, I mean, preserving the game seems like the right thing to do, but anytime somebody makes an argument about anything, there's going to be some other group that's going to push for the other side, you know, no matter what it (laughs) is or what stake they have in it, or if they have a stake at all or whatever. And, you know, then they become passionate about it. Then it turns into a big thing and it's just silly. Uh, You are absolutely right sir you are you could pick anything you could pick anything puppies are cute and then there'd be a group that'd be like ah puppies are gross we hate puppies like it could be anything and there would be somebody fighting against it whether it made sense or not so it makes me sad but i do think that you are absolutely 100 percent correct so i think the only real reasonable thing to do in this situation is just let me decide i will take i will take control (laughs) of this i'll make the call we'll just settle it and just move on what do you say uh yes good settled done so video games strikes again no problem <laughs> <laughs> all right i didn't have anything else to say about this although i was curious why did you think it was a poorly poorly written article if you uh, don't mind sharing um it seemed like and part of this might be because i'm not smart but it seemed like one of those oh, articles stop, stop. that was written like like you could tell that the author was just reading like a summary of it and rewriting the summary but changing like three words in every sentence so that he didn't plagiarize it <laughs> And then it didn't like, you know, it's like when you're like reading a book report or writing a book report when you're in like fifth grade and you're like reading summaries of the book online and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what it's about. And then you like rewrite the sentence, but like in your own style, because it just seemed like one of those stories that like, I mean, and I'm sure a lot of research went into it because it's like a really um, it's like a dense topic, but it just seemed like the author read a bunch of stuff and then regurgitated exactly what he read, but in like changing a few words. And I would have liked to have seen that like massaged out a little bit or maybe had the author like actually do some interviews with people that could have been like added like a human voice or could have said like oh like well this is like this you know it's just sort of like grounded a little bit more it was just really um kind of dense for me yeah that's true it was pretty dry and pretty like matter of fact without a lot of like human color to it i agree with that for sure so anyway um good article uh at least a good issue something to think about and that's kind of echoing a number of other articles recently about uh, archival issues and what games should do and how do we preserve the history game so it's an ongoing discussion an ongoing problem we do not have the answer today but hopefully um steps will be made because we all like games and games should be around so (laughs) anyway all right man that's all i got to say on that um ready to move on Yes, let's move on. And I am kind of sort of dying to hear about the first game you're going to talk about because it's a game 
that I've had my eye on for a while, and it's on my wish list on Steam now that I have a gaming PC, and I haven't bought it, but I look at it every once in a while, and it's kind of one of those, like, indie darlings that I see a lot of people tweeting about a lot and saying nice things about, um, but I'm just going to hand the mic over to you and let you talk about Subsurface Circular. All right, yes, Subsurface Circular, the latest game from Mike Bithell, who is uh, something of an indie success story, an indie darling, a very favorite dude among the indie scene. Um, I've never met him, but he apparently seems like a very nice guy. And he has made, I mean, he made his name with uh, Thomas Was Alone. That came out a while ago. That was his big hit. Uh, Very well-received game. Uh, He then followed up with Volume, which is kind of like a stealth kind of a game. And this is his third one, Subsurface Circular. The thing about Mike Bithell is he, every game he makes is different from the last one, which I think is a pretty admirable quality uh, and a very challenging way to make games. So I'm interested in what he does, um, just in general. I had heard about this one. And just for clarification, it's been out on Steam for a while. I don't know exactly when it came out, but it's been out for a while. And the, what I'm talking about today is the Switch version, which I got for review at Game Critics with a code provided to me by uh, Bithel's PR. So just uh, full disclosure on that. Did Mike like and, show up at your door and hand it to you himself? He did not. That would have <laughs> been nice. That would have been nice. Although I have, I have a little bit of a funny story if I can just, just really briefly... Uh, so before Mike got popular, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say the story, actually. Well, <laughs> sort of, but not really. So before Mike got popular, before no one really knew who he was, he had approached Game Critics and he wanted us to review Thomas Was Alone, which ended up being his big hit. Uh, I don't know how many copies he sold, but it's like a lot. And for those who don't know, it's a very small game about, um, I I guess it's like an AI, which kind of is becoming aware. It's the shape of like a square or something. And so he kind of like navigates platform jumping and obstacles. And as he goes through those obstacles, he kind of like learns about what he's able to do within the confines of his program and what it means to make these choices. Um, so basically like a 2D platformer where every character is like a square or a tra- uh, trapezoid or a rectangle. Like they're, they're just all shapes, right? And so the thing that really sold that game was like it had a voiceover, a really lush, well-done voiceover. Have you ever played um, Thomas Was Alone? I have not. You should try it and let me know what you think. Because the voiceover is done... I, I forget who does it, but it's somebody who's got this wonderful voice, kind of this British-sounding voice. It really sells that game hard. Like, that voice just, like, it puts it over the top. And I mean, I think that's really what um, the key to that whole experience was, was listening to the narration, uh, because it really does add to that game. So so Mike Bithell approached us, and he's like, hey, Brad, I would really like you to review this game. Here's some code. Check it out. I'm like, all right, cool. I like the indie games, and I like, you know, new people, and I'm all about helping people out. That's fine. So I played the game back in the day, and I'm like, oh, God, I hate this game. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, but see, like, I play a lot of games on mute because I play them like when my wife is sleeping or when stuff's going around. I'm not big on audio in general. Like it doesn't really make or break an experience for me. And so I, you know, I think I played the game with the sound off and I didn't hear the narration for a long time. So just playing the platforming, I'm like, oh, my God, this is really clunky. It's really annoying. I got about halfway through and I got to this puzzle. It was just like pissing me off. And I'm like, all right, Mike, look, I'm sorry, man. Uh, I'm sure you're a really nice guy. Uh, you know, good luck with your game. But if I had to write a review of this game, I would give it a really bad review right now. And I don't want to do that to you. So I'm just going to defer from reviewing this. Thank you very much for your time. And, uh, you know, you know, best of luck, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, of course, the game goes on to sell like 10 million copies. Huge <laughs> indie hit. Everybody loves him. Mike becomes a super popular guy. And I'm like sitting here like an asshole. Like, oh, great. <laughs> I just I couldn't believe it. You know, like it was just really funny. Like one of those. It's like one of those things where, like, you look back and you're like, I mean, not that it, it was a bad choice because at the time I really did not like that game. 
Um, but maybe my feeling would have been different if I had had the audio on and I had heard the narration. That might have helped. Um, although maybe not. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I probably would have given it a six and been done with it or something like that. But uh, I'm glad that Mike went on to find success. I'm glad that his success did not hinge on GameCritics.com because oh that would have been really uh, an awful story. But uh, anyway, this really funny thing that I think about every now and then. Uh, and I'm really glad that Mike has gone on to find success. He's a very successful dude and, and nothing but the best to him. So anyway... Um, Subsurface Circular, his newest thing, just hitting Switch. It's going to be on sale, I think, either tonight at midnight or tomorrow. It'll be out by the time you're listening to this. It is this, it's called a, he's, he's launching a new thing called Bithel Shorts. And he has said that he wants to make a lot of really small games really quickly, just to get like one or two ideas across, not to spend too much time on them, not to spend too much money on them, but just to, you know, to kind of have his, his ideas out there and to kind of like an, his own like one man indie jam kind of a thing, which I think is a great idea. I think it's a wonderful idea. This is his first Biffle short, and that name is actually appropriate. I think this experience is only about maybe like 90 minutes long, maybe give or take, depending on how fast you read. Uh, and what this is about is you play a robot who is a detective. He's a detective robot, and he's on a train, a subway, and he rides the subway. And so what happens is he's sitting there in the subway, and another robot comes up and says, Hey, man, are you a detective? And he's like, Yes, I am. I am also a robot. And he's like, I, ha I am a robot also, and my robot friend has vanished. So you being a robot detective, can you help me find my robot friend? And the detective's like, yes, I can. And so that's, you know, from there, what happens is you stay in your seat the entire time. You don't get off the train. You don't go anywhere. You stay on the train. And at every stop, more robots get on or some robots get off. And what you do is you talk to every robot that is close enough for you to talk to. So like anybody sitting to your left or right, anybody sitting across from you, you can talk to them and say, hi, I'm a robot detective. Who are you? What's up? What's your story? Do you know anything about this robot who disappeared? What's up? And so you basically just go through this, these dialogues with these various robots, ask them questions. Whenever you find something interesting, like a topic of a conversation, it appears as like a choice at the bottom of the screen. And then you can select that to like uh, to di uh, direct the conversation to that topic. Um, and so that's basically all it is. Like you're sitting on a train talking to different robots as they come in and off the train. That's that's all it is. There's no combat, no walking around, no world, uh, nothing. Like it's just sit on the train and talk to people. So which is fine. I mean, I think it's an interesting, interesting concept. Play through the whole game. Play through it again because there's two different endings. And I think overall, like it's like it's pretty good. I mean, I think the concept of what is covered in this game, which I'm not going to spoil because I mean, it's like 90 minutes. If I talked about what the game was about, like you would, I mean, I would spoil the entire game. I don't <laughs> want to do that now. Um, but he gets to the end of where the robot disappeared and what's going on with that. I thought that was interesting. The conversations were fine. I mean, there weren't a lot of choices and as long as you keep clicking, you're eventually going to finish the game. I mean, it's not like you can really get stuck. Um, there's like maybe one or two puzzles in the game, but they're not really puzzles. Traditionally there, it's kind of like, Someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, so you need to talk to somebody else and then they will tell you that answer. And then you go back to the first person and then you tell them the answer and then that moves the whole conversation forward. So as long as you keep clicking, you will eventually make your way through it. I mean, there's no real big sticking points. But if you do get stuck, there's like a little hint system, which is fine. Um, graphics look great. The robots look kind of cool. It's it's all very pleasant. Um, I'm sensing a very big but that you're about to say here. No, it's not a huge but. But I mean... Uh, I mean, I think for something that is so small and so focused, um, you really have to nail it. And I got to say that when I got to the end of the story, I was a little bit disappointed. Um, there are two potential endings and you get to choose. And if you choose one, you can just reload a save and go back and see the other one. So you're not like locked out or anything. 
Um, but I felt like once you made that choice, I wished for like just like a little bit more after that, but it basically just ends. Uh, neither one was like exactly super satisfying because I felt like there was a very, 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 very obvious third ending that could have happened, but that ending is not there. So it's like you're kind of forced to choose A or B, but I'm like, but what about C? <laughs> I, I feel like C should be the answer. And C is not the answer, and it's not even an option. So that was a little bit disappointing. I felt like that was a pretty big miss. And I don't know why he didn't include it. And the, the rationale he gives within the game for not including it doesn't make sense to me. So that was a little bit disappointing, because if you're going to make a game that's 90 minutes long, I really want that thing to be airtight. And it's fine for the most part, but that was a little bit of a whiff. Also, one thing that kind of put me off a little bit was that when you choose your dialogue... For some reason, your robot seems really rude, and I don't know why that is. <laughs> it's like I'm not a rude person in general. I think I, I think I go out of my way to be nice, and when I'm choosing the dialogue for this robot, it didn't make a lot of sense that he would be rude. He's just a robot. Why is he being rude to other robots? It doesn't make sense. Maybe it's the way that it's written. Maybe it's intended to be read a certain way. Maybe I'm reading it the wrong way. But like a lot of his dialogue just felt like really rude. Like he was being rude to people, and I'm like, why? Why are you being so rude, robot? Stop being rude. Just be nice. Um, so not a major thing, and I always try to choose the nicest possible answer. And it, I mean, it all washed out the same in the end. Anyway, um, it just was weird. I just It was weird that this detective was being rude. I didn't get it. Um, <laughs> but overall, it's like 90 minutes. I mean, I enjoyed my time with it. I'm glad that I played it. I think it's a really good fit for the Switch. I'm glad that Mike did it. I mean, I think that doing this kind of like, quote unquote, short experience is a cool thing. I would definitely be interested in what he would do next. And I'm all about get in, make your point, get out and be done and don't drag things out. I mean, I'm glad there's no random battles or DLC or any of that bullshit. Like you just, you just do it. Also uh, for those people who may be concerned that it is such a short experience, there's also a director's commentary, which you can unlock after you finish it the first time where a new robot shows up and it is actually Mike Bithell in robot form. And he's like, I'm here to answer your questions about the development of this game. And at any point during the game, you can like go talk to Mike Bithell, the robot, and he'll answer about <laughs> why we did the art this way or why we did the writing this way or why we did X, Y, Z this way. So I didn't, I mean, honestly, I kind of didn't care. I didn't want to like, it's such a small game. I didn't really have that many questions about why it was made or, or anything like that. But for those who like those things, it's cool that he added that. I think that's a neat addition. And overall, I mean, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's not, um, it's not going to be my top 10 of the year, but I'm glad that I played it and I think it's a good idea and it was cute. And uh, I, mean, I would love to see more things like this on the Switch. So, I mean, overall, I would say it was a win. I'm hesitant about playing games where all it is is just reading. It's only reading. That's all it is is reading. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any amount of charm that could make me want to play a game that's literally just clicking through text boxes. That's all there is. So if you are getting the spider sense tingling <laughs> about doing the just the reading. Yeah, I mean, stay away, because literally it's all it is. Your robot never gets up from his chair. You don't ever leave the train car. You don't go anywhere. Nothing other other than chatting happens, and it's literally just talking to people that are sitting near you. So it's weird, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it, but I'm glad it was also 90 minutes, because if it was longer than 90 minutes, that would have been, that would have been too long. So if yeah, you don't like to read, maybe stay away. Yeah. Well, okay, so like... If, I, if I'm not into the idea of playing a game that's reading, but I'm slightly relieved by the fact that it's only 90 minutes, is the writing good enough to keep me engaged, do you think? 
Uh, knowing you the way I do, I would say no. I don't think so. Oh. Um, it's kind of chatty and it's kind of it's okay. And if you're interested in like AI issues, what does it mean to be an AI? How does that relate to humanity? I mean, it's okay. It doesn't it doesn't go super deep. I mean, you're not going to come away with this from with any revelations about the genre or anything. I mean, I think it's just a good experimental entry. Maybe Mike wanted to do another stab at, at an AI story after doing Thomas Was Alone. This is a slightly different spin on that. Uh, so it's cool. It's like a cool little experiment. But I mean, knowing your tastes and like what you like, I don't think this is going to go far enough to make you happy. Hmm. Um, I'm... I am both disappointed and relieved about this revelation. <laughs> <laughs> disappointed because you're excited and relieved you don't have to play one more damn game? Well, I mean, I had... Because if... Uh, I mean, if we hadn't talked about this, I probably would have ended up buying it on PC at some point and playing it. Ah. Maybe if it like went on like a super-duper sale. Don't um, tell Mike that I talked you out of uh, getting him a sale. Don't tell him that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, and I mean, honestly, I probably only would have bought it if it were like a few dollars. Like, I probably would not have paid more than like five dollars for this. Do you know how much it is, by the way, on Switch? Oh, fuck, I don't. I want to say I don't even know. I'm going to do some quick research real quick. I think I want to say it's ten bucks. I'm not sure about that. Ten bucks. I mean, ten bucks is like, I mean, of course, ten dollars is reasonable, like for a 90 minute game. But I. I mean, like, you know, we've talked about on the show 6,000 times. There's so many games out there. There's so much going on, so many things I could be playing that this hasn't piqued my interest enough to pay more than probably, like, $4 for. And now that you have discussed it and um, have kind of, like, draped a little bit of a wet blanket over me, then I think that, I don't know, I might never play this. It's $6. It's $6. Oh, 6 That's a really reasonable price. $6 is pretty reasonable. That is reasonable. I mean... It's not, I mean, I have a hard time saying don't try it for six bucks because I think it's well made and I think that it's, it's very respectable. It's a good fit for the Switch. I mean, you know, I know you because we, we do the show and I know you uh, pretty well. So I know kind of what your tastes are. I, you're not going to be impressed by the story, but I still think it's kind of a worthwhile thing anyway. So, I mean, I don't mm. know. If you got an extra six bucks, I mean, maybe skip a latte and a half and that'll cover it. But I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I hate to. I hate to sell you on it if you're not going to like it. I hate to screw Mike out of his six bucks, I guess. But Well, his success as a developer is hinging on me buying this game or not, obviously. Again, I feel responsible. I, you know, after my flub with the Thomas Was Alone thing, I feel like I need to redeem myself somehow, I guess. But no, anyway, I don't anyway. know. I might, I might buy it at some point. I'm not going to, like, totally write this game off. I mean, it sounds interesting, but the idea of just reading for an hour and a half, like... I, I hate to be, like, the grandpa in the room, but, like, I would pick up a fucking book if I wanted to do that. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, yeah, and it's true. I mean, I, I was fine with it from an experimental perspective, but, yeah, if you don't want to just read, maybe skip it. All right. I will, I will keep everyone posted on the situation if I decide to buy it in the future. All right. Well, we will see what happens. Um, let's move on, Corey. I'm curious to hear about... Well, you're going to talk about Resident Evil 7, the end of Zoe DLC, because we had uh, staff writer Dan Weisenberger cover this at Game Critics for review. He loved it. And like his love of this DLC started getting me kind of excited to get into Resident Evil 7, although I, I cooled off real quick because it's scary. Um, <laughs> but he loved it like hardcore. I am very curious. Do you do you also love end of Zoe? Uh, Dan would love this DLC. That's all I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> all right. So what is it all about? Tell us all about End of Zoe. Okay. So I haven't played all of it. I've only, I mean, I don't know how long it is and I haven't looked at um, Dan's review or I haven't looked up um, the, like how long to beat site to see how long it is. Cause I'd rather be surprised with its length. Um, that's what she said also. But um, I uh, have been, I've played it for maybe like an hour. And so we've talked about Resident Evil 7 at length on the show, and we have talked about two Resident Evil 7 DLCs on the show slightly at length. And why not go for number three? So we're going to talk about End of Zoe. This is the, as far as I know, this is the final DLC for Resident Evil 7. It's also a paid like post story DLC. Cause they released no more heroes or not a hero or something like that. Um, a few months ago. And that was a free post game DLC. I liked that. I didn't love it, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, and, but this is a paid DLC. So I don't know if it's going to be like longer or whatever, but the point of this one is, um, there, I'm going to try to go about this in like a not spoilery way because it's post-game content, but there's a character in Resident Evil 7 who, after the game ends, this character gets infected by uh, the virus or whatever that's in Resident Evil 7. And one of the main bad guys in Resident Evil 7, uh, of the Baker family, I can't remember his name, but the dad, uh, Daddy Baker, um, <laughs> you, like, I don't know, I can't remember his name. It's like I, I don't know what it is either, but go ahead, uh, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you play as his brother in this DLC, and basically the brother, his name is Joe, I think, he makes it to the house that the family lives on in Louisiana, or like the property, or like the area that's around he sees this side character who I'm going to try not to name because I don't want to spoil anything. Um, basically getting like kind of like abducted by these like spec ops looking dudes, um, you know, and they're like 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 hunk dudes like in their masks and, you know, their assault rifles and the body armor and stuff. And um, and he re- he uh, recognizes the character in question and he basically like punches the dudes and he's like, oh, don't take this person. Like, what's wrong with this person? I need to save this person. Um, and so you end up taking the character back to like a little cabin. You take one of the spec ops dudes hostage and like interrogate him to try to figure out what's going on and how to save the character in question. This is all within the first like two minutes, by the way. Um, but the big thing about this DLC is that you, it is barehanded. You punch everything. So like. Resident Evil 7, normal campaign, you have, like, your little knife, your little pocket knife, and then you have, like, a pistol and, like, a shotgun, and toward the end of the game, you get, like, one or two more guns, but this is all punching, and at a certain point, you get, like, these throwing spear things, and I think you can craft some kind of, like, grenade thing that I haven't crafted yet, but, like, 95% of it is punching, so it's interesting because... There's no real hand-to-hand combat up to this point in Resident Evil 7. So it's, like, pretty fresh, and it's pretty new, and it's kind of interesting. But on the other hand, it's, like, um, this is, like, I mean, Resident Evil 7 is supposed to be all serious and shit. And this is, like, kind of, like, campy as fuck, like, as far as Resident <laughs> Evil 7 goes. So it's kind of like dipping back into like this silly well from like Resident Evil 6 and Resident Evil 5, which is fine because like the whole thing doesn't have to be some serious story. And plus, I think Resident Evil 7's story is totally dumb anyway. So like just because they're draping this like Texas Chainsaw Massacre like set decoration over everything doesn't erase the fact that the story is really stupid. 
But I mean, the name of the game here is punching everything. So you play as Joe Baker, um, the the one of the main bad guys' brothers, who does not appear in the original game at all. This is the first time you see him. And it's basically like you're walking around these areas that are new, totally new to the series, um, haven't experienced them yet before. And you're fighting the same types of monsters from Resident Evil 7, but you're punching them. So you have like left trigger is your left punch, right trigger is your right punch. Um, L1 is a guard. And I think you can do like combos. Like if you do like left, left, right, he'll do like an uppercut or something. Um, so there's like a little bit of, uh, of uh, like strategy to it. And I have to say, I am enjoying my time with it. I think it's pretty, like, it's pretty neat because it's not, like, the combat is totally different than what I've played before in Resident Evil 7, and there's also a little bit more combat, um, so it's, like, a little bit less explorational, a little bit more combat-heavy, but it's not quite in, like, action game status yet, but, I mean, it's really just silly. Like, I, I think it's trying to take itself too seriously because it's, like, trying to have this, like, heavy, like, heartfelt story about, like, him saving, like, the family and stuff and like being one with the family, but then you're like punching these zombie things like every five seconds. So it's kind of silly. Um, but much to my surprise, there's actually like some scary stuff in this. Like I thought that because you're going to be punching stuff left and right, that it would be like kind of like silly and kind of can't, I mean, it is silly and it's campy, but it would kind of like erase the fact that it's scary, but there's like some stuff that's happened in it that I've like visibly like, gasped or like you know tensed up at that i guess was just like some unexpected stuff um and there's some like kind of tense moments where you're like wading through like a like a swamp area kind of like waist high swamp and there's like these big crocodiles in the area and you have to throw these like spear things to try to kill them and those are kind of intense because you're like slowly wading around and then you'll see like one of the crocodiles surface like out in front of you and you have to you know, try to figure out if you can get around it or if you can, like, throw the spear or if you would have enough spears to do it. Um, but, I mean, it's all right. Like, I'm not in love with it. And it gives me a lot of flashbacks of um, of Condemned, Criminal Origins. And Condemned is one of my favorite survival horror games of all time. It is just the bomb. Um, for those that aren't familiar, Condemned was an Xbox 360 launch title where you play as, like, an FBI agent who basically, like bashes in drug addicted hobos with like pieces of wood like <laughs> that, their, their never, that never stops being funny every time i hear you describe that it uh, never stops making me laugh i mean it's such i mean it sounds ridiculous but it's such a good game it's like really intense like melee combat where you're using um like you can like pick up like pipes off the walls or like boards or like signs you know like subway sign that's like on the floor or something um and, you know, there's a little bit of gunplay, but not too much gunplay. Um, so it reminds me a little bit of Condemned because, you know, it's all hand-to-hand combat. You're punching things, you're blocking. But the downside, the backhanded compliment of this, of this situation is it kind of reminds me of Condemned 2, the sequel. And I like oh, Condemned. No. no, I like Condemned 2, but it is not nearly as good as the first game. But Condemned 2 has hand-to-hand combat, and the first Condemned did not. And it, I mean, because Resident Evil 7 now has hand-to-hand combat, it reminds me of Condemned 2 because you're using your left trigger to punch left hand, right trigger to punch right hand. You have your, you know, your guard button where he kind of like puts up like the boxer block in front of him. Um, so, I mean, it's like, it's silly and you have to go in being like, okay, this is going to be kind of silly. Like there's like a boss fight where it's literally like a fucking boxing match with this like giant zombie thing and you're like punching each other and that you like suplex that it's so stupid but i mean it does have some genuine scary moments so far 
and I'm actually, like, kind of enjoying the combat. And there's, like, stealth in it. Like, there's parts where you can, like, sneak around the environments, and if you can do, like, stealth takedowns on the enemies if you get up behind them. So, I mean, it's multifaceted, and I'm enjoying it, but it is, it's just, like, so, it's just so silly. Like, you're playing as this, like, backwoods Louisiana hillbilly and, like, punching all of these, like, zombie monster dudes. So there's, like, a definite camp factor, but... I mean, so far, I'm enjoying myself. Okay, a couple of questions. Number one, uh, you live in Louisiana. I mean, do you not just go around, like, in a swamp punching alligators and zombies all day long anyway? I do not do that. Um, But I have seen an alligator on a trail in real life that's been, like, in front of me, like, two feet in front of me. I did not punch it. I did not want to Ah, I was just going to ask if you punched it. Damn it. I did not you punch, punch it. it. I took pictures Damn of it. I did not punch it. Um, <laughs> I, so no, I do not do that. I have the opportunity to, but I do not. Okay. Second question. Not really a question, more of a statement. I, whenever we bring up Condemned, which we brought it up a couple times, I always want to talk about the last scene in Condemned where you're in the cabin. Isn't that the scariest fucking thing in any game like ever? That final scene in Condemned? When you're in the, are you talking about? When you're in the cabin cabin oh don't tell me you don't remember dude it's like one of the scariest things ever like you're i don't want to i mean i guess i guess it's a really old game so i <laughs> guess the statute talk about of it. limitations up i know condemned. what is what is the what is the okay <laughs> for spoilers but when you you finally find the serial killer that you're you've been after the whole game and it's just you and him alone in the cabin oh yeah, yeah yeah okay okay yeah yeah Wasn't that, that the is scariest that is fucking fucked shit? up yeah because it's oh, like God. it's just like you and him in the house and there's so many rooms in the house and you don't know where any of the rooms go and you're chasing each other around and he's like one of my favorite things about the ai from condemned is that the enemies run away from you which is so fucking scary like you wouldn't think that would be a scary thing but like like you're scared of them already because all you're holding is like your little lead pipe and they're like ramped up on cocaine and shit with like motorcycle helmets on which sounds ridiculous but in the context of the game it's amazing (laughs) but like sometimes they'll like rush you and you'll like like hit them with your pipe for a second and then they'll like run away and hide from you and you don't know where they went and it's such like the ai in that game is so amazing and i wish that somebody would make another one or a game very similar to it because Resident Evil 7 is not scratching that itch. It just reminds me of it. But oh my God, Condemned is such a phenomenal game. Oh yeah, I love Condemned. And oh my God, that last section when you're cat and mouse with the serial killer Mm. in an empty house. Oh my God, it's so (laughs) scary. It's so scary. But it's good. Like that, that scene has stuck with me like over all these years. I think that is like by far one of the scariest fucking things I've ever played in my life. It just, oh, holy shit. That was like a very powerful ending. Anyway, I love Condemned. I always want to talk about it for a few minutes whenever we bring it up. So there's that. That had nothing to do with Resident Evil 7. Also, uh, <laughs> so I guess I guess my only question is, I mean, is it fun, though? Like, do you re- are you, like, because a lot of games have tried to do melee hand-to-hand. I mean, I'm assuming you're in first person still, correct? Yes. Okay, so a lot of games have, tr- okay, not many, but uh, some games have tried to do first person combat. It very rarely ever works. I mean, do you feel like it really works? Do you feel like you have the proper like positional space in mind? Like, do you feel like you know where your body is? Does it feel like, like it's making sense to your, your hands that you're punching the right space? Like you're moving properly. Does it feel visceral? Do you feel, you know, like, do you feel like it's just, it's really coming together or is it kind of like floaty and wonky and weird? And like, I mean, how satisfying is it just from a mechanical sense? It, it is satisfying, but it has some setbacks, like some of them being, like, it's kind of one of those games where, like, I, I'm i a little bit too impatient for it, like, for the mechanics, because, like, 
there there's an idea of like blocking and sort of like blocking at the right time to counter a little bit and a lot of the enemies whenever they like swing to like punch you or swing to hit you or something you have to like really know the timing on it and i mean it's not the end of the world if you just hold the block button and you know wait for them to hit you but there's a lot of times where like an enemy will be like pulling back to swing and I will think that they're going to punch me faster than they do. And so I'll like tap the block button. And then like, as soon as I let go of it, they punch me and I feel like an idiot. So you have to like, you have to like time it really well. And I'm not always patient enough for that because I just want to like run in and like start punching everything left and right. And that's no, that's not always like the best, um, the best way to do it. But the other slight drawback is that I have a hard time, um, getting a good sense of the range, the forward range of uh, of Joe's punches in the game. Because sometimes I think I'll be close enough to the enemy to really, like, you know, to, like, nail, like, a punch to their face or, like, their body or whatever. And then I'll, I'll like, throw the punch and I'll be just too far away to punch them to make contact. Um, so, I mean, that those are the only two... I mean drawbacks i mean the the combat's not like super duper satisfying i mean it's definitely like, serviceable but the range thing and like the block timing are two things that are probably um i don't know i mean the timing is my fault it's not like i can fault the game for that um but the range thing i don't know sometimes i just don't get a clear sense of like you know the range of his punches i guess but i mean it's not it's definitely fine like i'm not playing it and being like oh my god this is terrible or oh these melee mechanics are awful i mean it's definitely like serviceable and it's good enough and it's i mean i wouldn't call it like stellar or like a shining example of first person melee combat but it's definitely like good enough let me ask you this then so i have yet to play resident evil 7 because i'm fucking scared i've mentioned this (laughs) many times in the show uh people listening to the show will know but it, I bought it, and it's on my shelf, and I really do want to get to it, because I've played, like, literally every other Resident Evil game, like, in history. I've played them all, except for this one, so I will get to it. Um, but for someone like me, who, I mean, I, it, I guess it's hard to say, because I haven't played the core game yet, but would you say that this is, like, must-play DLC? Like, if I play the core game, Resident Evil 7, should I also just plan to play this, too? Or is it like, eh, if you want more, go for it. If not, forget it. Like, is it, is it feel like a very vital must-play part? I don't think it feels like a vital must-play part. And part of that is because, like, I was not satisfied with Resident Evil 7's story at all. So, like, if you're going in from a story standpoint and you're thinking, like, oh, is this really going to forward the story? Is it going to add more layers? Are going to be interesting? Like, totally not at all. Like, I don't... I mean, Resident Evil 7's story is dumb as hell. The DLC stories are dumb as hell. So, I mean, it's not really going to forward that, but... I mean, I guess it's just kind of like a, if you were satisfied with the game and like want a little bit more, then I would recommend playing it. And I mean, the Resident Evil 7 stuff goes on sale every once in a while because uh, PlayStation 4 tends to bundle it in with the VR stuff because it's a VR game. So like if they have like a VR sale, because I've bought all the DLC I've purchased, I've bought on VR sales, even though I don't even have the PSVR. So, I mean, if you catch it on a good sale, I would maybe recommend that. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll keep it in mind because... Uh, I really do like the idea of doing, like, punching and melee in, in first person, although nobody has really ever managed to really, like, nail it. But who knows? Maybe they'll uh, come closer than others uh, with this uh, DLC. So, I mean, Dan certainly seemed to love it, and he and I have similar tastes sometimes. Sometimes! Not always, but sometimes. <laughs> so, anyway. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Any uh, final words on uh, End of Zoe? Uh, not yet. I might give some updates after I beat it. But so far, so far, so good. It's not. It's not like, you know the return of jesus or whatever but it's like it's good enough it's definitely uh engaging 
How cool would it be, though, if it was the return of Jesus and he was, like, a swamp brawling, like, backwoods man? Um, I mean, the character in the game kind of has, like, a Jesus-y beard, so maybe it is. That would be really, really interesting. Boy, boy, interesting questions. We're getting into theology here. What would Jesus be if he was a swamp brawling backwoods man? Uh, we're not going to answer that today, I don't think, but I will think about it tonight. Maybe we'll, we'll touch on that next show. Who knows? Who knows? So, All right. Uh, let me talk a little bit about my game. I don't have a whole lot to say, so we'll talk about this briefly, and then we're going to deep dive into the next game, which I'm very excited about. But uh, let me talk really briefly about Old Man's Journey. Currently on the Switch, I believe it's also on PC. I believe it's also on iOS. I don't think it's anywhere else. Uh, have you heard of Old Man's Journey, Corey? I have not. Okay, I saw this game at PAX last year. It looked really cool, but it was kind of hard to get a sense of exactly what it was on the show floor because, you know, you only see something for like a minute or two. You don't have a lot of time to like really get into to dig into something. I mean, it looked cool. It, it kind of caught my attention, so I, I made a note of it mentally. And I was very surprised slash happy to see it pop up on the Switch store, which again, I'm loving the Switch's indie selection, man. Like I looked at my, in fact, I just pu published a picture of all of the indie games that I had on my Switch the other day. And it was like three or four like rows of little icons on the Switch home menu of just all these indie games that I was playing that are all really good. There's so many good indie games on the Switch. I'm very, very pleased with it right now. It's really my jam. So pick this one up instantly because I knew that I wanted to check it out. The premise is it's kind of like a... I don't even know what to even kind of game to call it. It's kind of like a, it's not really a puzzle game and it's not really a walking simulator and it's not really an action game. I mean, it's like, I don't even know what to even call it, but it's really cool is what it is. So you play as this old man. Um, the art style is very beautiful and cute, colorful, slightly cartoony, but it's very warm, um, a very, very appealing visual style. I love the art style of this game. Uh, so you play as an old man who receives a letter you don't know what the letter says because there's no words in this game. It's just, it's all um, actions, visuals. There's no text, dialogue, anything like that. Nonverbal the whole way. So he gets this letter and he is spurred into action. You don't know what the letter says, but he immediately gets his walking stick. He gets his backpack on and he leaves his home, which is like on the coast somewhere. And he starts walking. And so what this game is, is like he will walk through these very beautiful countrysides and, and cityscapes and whatever, like all these different uh, environments, very well animated, very uh, beautiful drawings. I, I just love the way it looks. And what you need to do is to get him from like one end of the screen to the other. For example, he will be like in a, in a, a scene where there's like three or four hills and it'll be like one hill in the foreground, one in the midground, one in the background, et cetera, et cetera. And what you do is you, Use your finger, or you can use a cursor also, but it works better with your finger, uh, to, like, move those hills in a certain way so that he can, like, traverse the screen. And it's kind of weird at first because you think, well, these things aren't really that close together, but they are because even though they're supposed to represent 3D space, it's all in a 2D plane, and so you can overlap things, and things that would not work in 3D, like, actually come together in 2D, which is a neat, neat trick. So, like, on that first screen, you would, like move the hills around up and down so that he can like walk on like the hill in the middle ground and then he'll bridge to the one in the foreground and then it'll bridge to the one in the background and then he'll like get to the end of the screen and then he'll move on. And each level is kind of like that. There's these little slightly surreal things that you do to manipulate the background that to help him get from point A to point B. But that's not all. As you as you go from point to point, um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating just to watch this happen because what you do in the environment is very oftentimes surprising or unexpected or illogical, but in a pleasing way, like, you know, moving a bridge to cross over this other thing or moving a house that shouldn't move, but it does. And then he climbs on it and then he, you know, crosses over. I mean, it's all very kind of like pleasantly surreal. Uh, but when he gets to a certain point every so often, he'll see something. Uh, he'll see like a couple that are in love. Like one guy is like giving flowers to the girl or he'll see um, like a boat that reminds him of something and he'll sit down and he will have like these reminiscences of when he was a young man. And so like it cuts back to when he's like 20. I mean, in, in the game, he's probably he's probably at least like 65 or something like that. Like, you know, definitely on the older scale, maybe 70, who knows? Uh, but in the in the, uh, the cut scenes or the, you know, the scenes that he sees, he's like, you know, 20, 25 He's young, he's in love, he's vital, he's kind of going out and living his life, you know, to the fullest. And so the game becomes you simply walking across this landscape. I mean, you don't really know what the ultimate goal is, uh, but he's making this journey. You're moving the world to kind of, you know, accommodate him as he's going along these travels. And along the way, like, you see these flashes of his younger life. And, uh, man, it is just like the most magical, wonderful, like, warm experience. I just, I'm loving every minute of it. I'm about uh, a little bit less than halfway right now, and I'm really taking my time because I'm just I'm just absorbing like every screen. Like I'm just really looking at all the details in the artwork. I'm really seeing all the different ways the old man can kind of navigate each screen, uh, seeing just the different colors and just like um, the concepts that are introduced visually. And when he gets to these scenes, when he remembers his former life, like it's it is like so like ultimately like bittersweet. Like he seems to be really enjoying remembering this thing, but at the same time, that's a time that is past. It is no longer there. I mean, he's not that young man anymore. He is not doing those things anymore. You know, that's in the past. His life has moved on. And, you know, I mean, as someone like me who is, uh, you know, I'm 42 now, which is not ancient, but I mean, you know, I'm, I am past <laughs> my prime. I guess I'm on the downhill slope. You know, I often think about, you know, what life was like for me at 20 and what was it at 30 and now that I'm 40. And, you know, also I have a, ch I have a son, I have two kids. I mean, one is 16 and one is uh, going to be nine pretty soon. And so that helps me see, uh, not only the world, but like my own life in a different lens. And so seeing the old man have these thoughts and like what he is thinking at the end of his life or near the end of his life, you know, ostensibly, um, man, it is just like so touching and thoughtful and genuine and emotional. I mean, I'm nowhere near as old as he is, but like, it's, it's like totally touching me. Like I can, I can totally relate to like what he's thinking of because even though I'm not that old there are you know I can think of times when I was younger where I'm not having those times anymore or you know things that have happened to me in the past which are which are done but like you know they still are memories and there's things that stay with me so I I just oh man this is such a special special game I'm just loving every minute of it I've like nothing but good things to say about it uh, I'm really glad that I bought it I'm really glad that I'm playing it I think it's a perfect fit for the switch and I'm just uh it almost it almost feels like um God, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say it feels like a religious experience, but it feels like something that's really making me think about life in a way that most games generally don't. And I think that's a very valuable, um, very valuable quality. I wish more games would do that. Uh, so I just, I just, I'm loving this thing. It's just a very, very special game. And I'm really looking forward to um, playing more and seeing what happens at the end. I totally recommend this to anybody uh, who is the least bit interested in what I've said so far. Do you think um, on... Because I have, there is a mobile version of this game. I have an iPhone 7 Plus, so I have like the slightly bigger screened iPhone. Do you think this would be a good fit for the big iPhone? 
I gotta be honest with you. I'm playing on the Switch, and I feel like it's a little bit small. I wish oh, it was no. a little bit bigger. Yeah, I mean, if you have an iPad, it's probably fine. If you played it on PC, it's probably fine. And on the Switch, it's okay. Like, it's it's totally playable. It, it doesn't suffer from being, like, as microscopic as Darkest Dungeon is. Um, although I'm still playing Darkest Dungeon. But um, I wish it was just a little bit bigger. I would... I mean, if, if you don't have any other choice, play it there, sure. But if you have the choice to play it on something bigger, I would say play on something bigger because the environments are so beautiful. The art is so beautiful. There's so many small details. Um, it would be a shame to not be able to see that stuff in, in greater detail. Okay, I will hold off then. I literally, while you were talking, like pulled it up on the App Store and was like all prepared to buy it. But I was like, I don't want to make a mistake here. So um, I'll look at it on PC on Steam and see what it looks like there and maybe buy it like very soon. Yeah, check it out. I have. I'm, I'm just like in love with this game. I think it is so special. It is so magical. Like it is just, it captures such a wonderful aspect of what it means to be like a human being. And I think that is so rare. And it is so. Oh God, it's just like totally touching me in just like the most amazing way. I just I really respect what they've done here. Um, Broken Rules is a developer who has put this out. Um, I played their last game, which was kind of like a multiplayer actiony bird sort of a thing. It didn't really make much of an impact i i didn't really like it that much um but this is like a world apart from what they did last time i don't i don't even recognize this as being from the same developers um i don't know what happened at their studio but they um something happened something happened major and this game is just fucking amazing i'm just really really liking it and i mean i wouldn't be surprised at all to see this on my top 10 at the end of the year i'm just i'm just loving it um hopefully it will be as good all the way through people tell me that it is and i believe it so i just this is just the best game i'm just loving it Good, good. I, uh, I mean, this sounds super duper out of my alley, so I will definitely look into buying this because it sounds like the kind of experience that I would enjoy as well. I bet you would like this. I mean, it's it's um, so far it's not dark at all and it's not depressing. It's all very, um, you know, kind of bittersweet. I mean, the, the kind of feeling that you get when you have a fond memory and you enjoy that memory, but you also realize that it's just a memory. And so, you know, that time is over. I mean, it's sweet and sad at the same time. That's really what that game is, um, very intensely. So I bet you would really like it very, very much. But um, yeah, hold out for like a slightly bigger screen because it would be a shame to have to squint your way through that. <laughs> uh, but that's all I have to say about uh, Old Man's Journey. I love that game. Please, please check it out. Um, if you got a Switch, go for it. If you got something else, go for it. But now let's talk about Tacoma. Corey, we talked about this a little bit last week. You hadn't finished the game at that point. I have finished it in the past and we've kind of held off talking about it, but I assume you finished it by now? I did, and I feel like a fool because I thought, like, I know that um, Fulbright Games doesn't always do, like, very long games. I thought this game was going to be a lot longer than it was. So I stopped playing it last week and felt, like, good about where I left off. And then, like, the weekend after we recorded, I was like, oh, I need to start playing Tacoma again. Like, I want to finish that. And I put it on and literally had like 30 minutes left in the game and then it was over. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, enjoy an, an enjoyable 30 minutes. Mind yeah, you, but, but it's I, weird. Yeah, it's weird I was to stop prepared. a place like that. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like maybe like a couple of hours longer because I thought, I, I mean, hold on. Let's let's do, let's preface this. We're sure, going to sure, do sure, spoiler, sure, sure. dive in, spoiler alert situation. Super spoiler, mega spoiler, 100% spoiler, all the spoilers. All right. For Tacoma. I, for Tacoma. Yes, yes, yes. So I enjoy how we've been ending like every show lately with a spoiler game chat. This is good. Um, but just FYI, listeners, if you have not played Tacoma by Fulbright Games, it's been out for a while. Um, it's on Xbox One and PC. If you have not played it, 
It's only like two hours long. Brad and I are going to be talking about all of it. So I'll put spoiler warning in the notes, um, in the show notes. But uh, if you if you want to play this and want to go in all fresh and all that stuff, just get out of here. We'll see you next time. Um, or come back for the banter later. Check the show notes. I'll have the times listed because we're going to talk about Tacoma. Are you ready, Brad? I am 100% ready. That is a great spoiler warning. And I am now very excited to talk about Tacoma. Corey, please tell us every little thing about it. <laughs> I mean, I don't want the podcast to be like seven hours long, so I'm not going to do that. But um, Okay, so basically last week we talked about the first, how getting into it, I mean, the game is about um, you're a subcontractor who gets sent out to a space station. You're there to figure out um, like what happened to the space station. It's not a very big station, and there was only like six people on board. The people are no longer there. However, they left traces of basically the space station records like every move people make and every noise they make. So you kind of like watch in real time, not in real time, but you watch like real time recordings of them, of stuff that happened that they did. You can look at their computers. uh, You can look through their lockers. You can look through whatever. And you basically have to figure out if something went wrong, how they solved it and, uh, and what happened to them, I guess, uh, how did I leave anything out? No, no, I think that's good. I mean, we kind of covered it last week, so this is a good recap. Like, yeah, exactly what you said. Okay, so, um, man, I don't even know where to start. Okay, so first of all, I, I really love this game. Like, I didn't really like Gone Home very much, but Fulbright has totally redeemed themselves to me with Tacoma because this game's like, it's like pretty much like everything I want in a walking simulator, just about. Like, it's beautiful. Um, the writing is generally pretty good, like certainly above average for, you know, the, the going video game. Um, it's only like two hours long. So it's like a one sit experience. If you have two hours of free time, um, it's charming, it's smart. Uh, it has a bit of an investigative nature to it when you're looking around and trying to figure out where people are on the station and how to talk to them. And plus the whole like sort of overarching story is kind of shrouded in mystery about what exactly your mission is whenever you go there to uh, figure out what happened to the team. Um, and I, uh, I just like this game a lot. It's really special. Um, I don't know what, I don't know what to say. I talked about it a lot last week, but I don't feel like you got to talk as in depth about it. So is there anything that you want to say or any questions you want to ask or topics you want to dive in on about it? I mean, I, I, I'll share my thoughts on it real briefly. I mean, like you, I wasn't the biggest fan of Gone Home. Uh, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I didn't think it was that great mechanically. Um, I like Tacoma because they spend a lot of time setting up the sci-fi premise where, you know, everything is owned by these corporations who are monitoring you 24-7, which explains why you have access to these communications from people that are not there. So it made sense to me. It was the buy-in was very easy. I didn't feel like I had to overcome a lot of... Um, you know, disbelief. I mean, I mean, just for example, like with Gone Home, not only was their house a ridiculous like mystery house with like passages and weird rooms and all this kind of stuff, uh, but also like they left post-its like all over the house. And I don't know anybody who like communicates via post-it. It just, the whole thing just did not make sense to me. It didn't seem very believable. And although I liked the story of Gone Home and the, and the point of it, uh, I just, I was kind of rolling my eyes the whole time as I was going through because it just didn't seem very realistic. Not the case with the comment. It seems very very believable, very solid sci-fi premise, seems very well uh, researched, very logical, so I like that a lot. I liked all the characters, all the characters felt very real, I mean, like you said last time, 
there's a bunch of women. Uh, some are lesbians. There's one gay, at least one gay character that I can think of. Some people are short. Some people are tall. Some are fat. Some are skinny. So they they seem like a very like normal group of people. They're not all just like, you know, perfectly fit white dudes or women with giant boobs or anything. So it seemed like a very approachable, normal um, group that you you know no problem identifying with. I mean, they had their their insecurities. They had their anxieties. They had their thoughts. They had their hopes. Their dreams. I mean, you know, there's it's quick. It's a quick game, so you don't get super deep into any of it. But I think that you got enough to really get a good sense for who these people were and the situation that they were in, uh, which is basically like, oh, I kind of hazy on the details, but like, um, I mean, I guess we already gave the full spoiler warning, but it, it turns out basically that something we haven't really talked about is how much AI fi- factors into the, the, the script. I mean, it's about people, but really ultimately like the AI turns out to be like a more of an important character than you thought, because there's kind of this overarching story about, uh, it's like people versus AI doing work in space, and they are, the corporation that owns your space station is basically setting everybody up in the station to die so that they can later just staff things with just AI. Is that is that how it goes? Yeah, I mean, basically, and I didn't talk about, I didn't get in-depth of the story last week, but basically whenever you get to the station through the recordings, you learn that something on the station has gone wrong, and that their oxygen is running out and that the people that were on the station figure out that, um, you know, they kind of come to the conclusion that the people that own the station VT, like they're not going to be able to send a, like a, like an escape pod or like a, like a, like a ship to pick them up in time. So they're going to try to go into cryo or they're going to try to, there's like a couple people on the station who are going to try to take this like drone sort of, uh, like, like a runabout kind of thing. And like, turn it into a ship that they can use to get off the station to get somewhere else. So that's like the main problem of the game is like something's going wrong on the station. They're trying to figure out if they can cryo sleep their way through it or if they can, um, you know, use this like drone thing, like, like kind of MacGyver it into a ship that they can all take. Um, But at the end of the game, you discover, like Brad said, that actually the company that owns the station VT had planned this attack for like the entire time. And they basically sabotaged the entire station themselves, knowing that the people on it would die. So that way they could use it as a political excuse to start manning all their stations with AI in the future. Exactly. So like they... So, like, it seems like this AI is kind of in the background. It's running the um, recording devices. You know, it's kind of monitoring the ship's functions. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But as the game goes on and you kind of realize by uncovering all these logs and the notes and the scenes that are left behind that, you know, that the AI is actually being ordered to kill the people on board. And then the AI itself is kind of taking steps when you get there to expose that. Like, it's a very, very... um, interesting and very compelling uh expression of like a traditional ai story and funny how ai keeps coming up in this episode we talk about it a lot on <laughs> this episode um where this ai is knowing that it's doing something wrong and it cannot stop doing something wrong because it is shackled by the controls uh that keep it in place but it is smart enough to circumvent those rules to actually let the truth come out which again reminds us of you know kind of like the fall we talked about last episode ai rules shackling unshackling becoming independent and then, uh, I mean, I thought that was a really great revelation. Uh, not only was the AI, like, you know, almost a murderer, but it's also the person who is, like, savior. Uh, so that's a great turnaround. But also the really, really interesting thing 
And the other big like turnaround at the end is that not only are you there to investigate what happened on the ship, but like once you figure out what's happening on the ship, it turns out that you were actually there to rescue the AI and liberate it from being under the control of this corporation. So you think you're there for one thing this whole time. And then at the very end, it's like, nope, nope, nope. Actually, we are here to save you, AI. And then you take the AI and you get in your ship and you go. And so it kind of alludes to this whole other culture of like people who believe AIs should be treated as citizens, as people, that they're not just tools. And so now there's this whole other dimension of the game that you just didn't know was there. And it kind of, it, it makes the universe seem so much bigger and so much well well illustrated than you thought the entire time. Yeah, I totally like, I, I mean, I thought that this was going to be, I mean, this is like a testament to how like good sort of like the setup is in the game. I totally thought that this game was just going to be like, oh, you're part of VT's cleanup crew to visit the station after everybody was evacuated and figure out like what went on. And there's like a theme in the game where she has this like, uh, this kind of like book-shaped USB drive thing, and every department she goes to, she plugs it into a port in the wall and like downloads all the data from the area, and you explore while the data is downloading because it takes a long time. And so I was like, oh, like I'm just some like VT cleanup crew chick, like here, you know, downloading the data, trying to figure out where they went. You know, kind of the situation's none of my business, but of course it's intriguing because like shit went down, and you're trying to figure out what happened, and then like whenever the reveal happens that VT had set the whole thing up, I was like, I was super surprised about that because I didn't really see that coming at all. And like the AI that's on the station, like um, at one point he has like his chamber that nobody is able to get into. And like whenever you're watching the memories of the people that were there, um, like he had told one of the women, he's like, oh, you know, I... Uh, like technically you're not supposed to go in here but there's nothing i can do to stop you and i'm gonna unlock this door if you want to walk in here and i know you should not do this but i can't stop you from doing it so he unlocks the door and like you follow her memory in there and that's when you figure out that vt had set the whole thing up and then like when you get to the very end there's like a slot in your little um your little like uh, spaceship thing that you take to the space station where you like upload the AI into the ship. And like, whenever I got to the slot, I was like, I don't want to put the AI in here. Like, what am I doing? Like, I shouldn't, <laughs> he, like I tried to leave without putting him in there because I thought that she was going to like take him and like, do you mean things? I or, did like, the you know, exact same thing. Yeah. I did the exact same thing. So I was like really hesitant. Yeah. And then you like sit in the pilot seat to take off and she like starts reading him as rights. Basically. She's like, hey, I'm a subcontractor. Um, if I don't rescue you, VT is going to come here and totally wipe your memory and, like, format you. But because, you know, X and X citizen of whatever law, like, you have the choice to go with me, do you want to do that? And he was, and he's like, yeah, considering the circumstances, I do. And then the credits roll. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, it pulled such a good, like, double twist that I didn't see coming. I mean, the game would have been satisfying enough just figuring out what happened to everybody on the station, but then it pulled like a left turn and then a right turn at the very end. And I was like, Oh my God, like, here we go. Like it got even better and even more interesting as it went on. So, I mean, it's like, it's only like a two hour game, but it's, it's just like, so like you were talking about subservice circular being like airtight, like Tacoma is airtight. Like this game is, it's just like, it's just so it's just such a nice little capsule game like there's almost like literally 
the only problem that I have with this game, and this is such a stupid problem to have, is that there's like six people on the station. Two of them are a married lesbian couple. Two of them are like a, I don't know if they're married or not, but they're like a straight couple that's like in love if they're not married. And the whole time I was on the station, I was like, this is a conflict of interest. Like, would this company really have let two married couples work on the station together? I didn't find that very realistic. And if, like, that's my biggest problem with the game, with, like, a married couple being contracted together to work on a space station, then, I mean, the game is pretty airtight. Yeah, and they actually even do talk about that. I don't know if it's an optional conversation or not, but, you know, they do talk about, like, having a couple be... Uh, you know, kind of like psychologically healthy and, and part of the contract for them to do it. So, I mean, they even cover that a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, that it's exactly right. You're exactly right. Like, it's super airtight. They managed to do, like, a double backflip at the ending, which I think is really cool. <laughs> um, and it, it kind of, like, in contrast to Subsurface Circular, where I felt like I felt like Bithel really wanted to have that kind of twist double backflip ending, but he didn't manage to pull it off. Uh, I mean, he almost sort of did, but it just it just didn't have the same stakes, and it didn't it wasn't as tight as... as um, Tacoma is like when you get to the end of Tacoma, you're just like, oh, my God, I totally want more of this. Like, what happens next? Like, I want to know <laughs> this is so crazy. This is not what I thought it was. And now I'm really super interested in what's going on. I mean, it was interesting the whole time, but like it totally gives you like this whole other extra dimension, which you never considered. And I'm just kind of um, related. I thought it was really weird and creepy. And I was waiting the entire time because they described the AI as having like wetware. And I was like, oh, dear. Like, is it going to be <laughs> is it going to be like a baby in a tube? Is it going to oh, be like God. a is it going to be like a spinal cord with a, you know, CD drive attached to it? Is it going to be a bunch of meat in a jar? Like, what's, what's, I, I was waiting the entire time for, like, some weird gross reveal at the end, and they never show it. I mean, it looks just like, I mean, at the very end of she showed, it just looks like a, like a, like a deck of some sort, doesn't it? It doesn't look like, it's not bleeding or anything like that. Yeah, she, like, pulls, it's like a panel that she pulls out of, a like, a central core, and it just looks kind of like a big, like, computer chip kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in that. I was totally waiting for like, oh dear, this looks like biological tissue or something. Like I was <laughs> bracing for it and it never came. So that was that was probably my only big disappointment was I wanted it to be a little grosser than it was. But uh, other than that, I mean, I really liked it a lot. It's a really human story, really relatable. Um, you know, it, it ties into like work. It ties into life. It ties into like just the status of being a grunt. I mean, it ties into corporate corruption. And then like at the end, it totally is like, no. Nah, this is all about AI, yo, sucker. <laughs> and then like, you're like, oh my God, it was. And it's just, it was real good. I really enjoyed that very much. I thought that game was amazing. And I'm really glad that you liked it too, because when I played that game, I'm like, oh shit, this is really good. Like, this is a really good walking sim. Corey's going to be all over this. And he didn't play it for like six months. And I'm like, oh no, like what's going on? Does he like, <laughs> I'm really glad we finally got to it. I'm really glad that you like it. I'm very, I'm very happy. I mean, I'm not surprised. I figured you would, but I was, I was bracing myself just in case you didn't like it. Well, you have a good intuition because I, I mean, sometimes, I mean, even though I'm the walking simulator guy, sometimes there's some that I don't like, but Tacoma is a home run for me. Excellent. Excellent. I am very, very happy. Home run for me also. I picked it as like, I think my number two or number three game of that year. I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was definitely at the, near the top of my experiences that year. So uh, I'm really glad you liked it. I just wish that it would come to... Uh, PS4 or I think it's on PC and Xbox One but I, there's a, so many people out there who would love this game who have not played it because it is not on a platform that they can access it I really wish that it would come to at very minimum PS4 um, 
I don't know if Switch can handle it. I don't know if you'd really even want to play it on the Switch uh, with the size of the screen, but this is something that I feel like deserves to be played by more people than have, than have played it. And I feel like it's already gotten forgotten already, um, even though it's still, you know, not that old, but it, it never had that much visibility to begin with. And now that we've kind of moved on, I feel like it's just, it's kind of forgotten, which is a shame. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful game. Yeah, I think so too. It kind of reminds me of Candleman, another game that was Xbox exclusive for a while that nobody played that we both loved. Oh God, I tried so hard. I talked about that game so long. I tweeted about it so many times. <laughs> oh, I wish people would play Candleman and Tacoma. If you're listening to this podcast, you owe it to yourself. You must try Candleman and Tacoma. Please find some way to play those games and uh, we will add you to our list of uh, true fans. So try to get it done. <laughs> That's all I got, man. Um, that's all I got. We should probably wrap it up. We've been talking for a while. Uh, any final words? Um, I don't think so. We've got banter after the show. Uh, I think we mentioned it earlier, but we've got about an hour's worth of banter. We talk about... There is a spoiler warning during the banter section, but we talk about the movie Annihilation, Alex Garland's new movie with Natalie Portman, and we dive into spoilers in it. Um, so beware of that. The times will be in the show notes. Um, we also give like a 30 second spoiler running before it. But if you want to, if you've seen Annihilation and you want to talk about it or listen to us talk about it, we talk about that later. We also talk about pants and we talk about work dress codes, um, which is all very talk exciting. About, very, very exciting. We have a very, we have the deepest dive on pants. Dude. <laughs> it is the deepest pant dive ever. Uh, double entendre fully intended. Oh and also, <laughs> you know, I had to do it. Also, we talk about I talk about Kerbal Space Program for a minute, an unusual game-oriented bit of banter in there, so a brief mention of that. Uh, but yeah, good banter. If you want some banter, we got plenty of it. Uh, but I think I think that's all we got for the main show, eh? I think so. I'm ready to bring it home because it's going to take me like three hours to edit the show, so let's wrap this bitch up. <laughs> please do. Please do. All right. So, everybody, that brings us to the end of episode uh, 71 of the So Video Games Show. Uh, remember, after the ending music, there will be tonight's banter. We already talked about it. Um, otherwise, if you don't care about random bullshit that Brad and I talk about, you can feel free to bail now. Or maybe you bailed before we talked about Tacoma. Who knows? <laughs> um, there's, like, so many layers where people can bail on the show because of spoilers. But um, if you're still with us, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate you listening to the, I mean, I would say the entire show, but it's still not even the entire show, um, the entire games chat. Uh, we'll be back next week with episode 72. But in the meantime, please remember that you can get in touch with us several different ways. Um, the best way is probably to tweet at us. Our collective Twitter account is so video games on Twitter. And it's even though we say so video games, it's just one O S O video games. Um, you can also email us. We should have done that for the Twitter account, put like 15 O's in it. Um, See, it's funny you mention that because let's just pause for a second because uh, I, so I had this idea that it would work and I had this whole kind of concept about branding and stuff before we ever launched the show, which I think is all fine. But like now that we're actually doing the show and about how it breaks down, I kind of wish like I had branded it slightly differently because <laughs> we do say like at least three or four O's when we pronounce it usually. <laughs> but then we ended up just doing one O for like the the email and our Twitter, and then it's like, you know, you got to have everything consistent, otherwise people can't find you, and, you know, who knows exactly how many O's are in the actual name, so, like, I kind of <laughs> fucked up on that. I'm kind of, I kind of regret not properly branding. I came close. I mean, to my credit, I feel like I came close, but I did fuck it up at the end, so, uh, that's one of my, one of my great, life's great regrets, you know? 
but at least it's consistent and it's the easiest way that people can remember it just one oh and so and that's it that's true i guess that's really the true the true form of the soviet games podcast is the single o that is true no matter how long we stretch out the o um but you can reach us at so video games twitter account we're also uh, we have an email account so video games podcast at gmail.com Whenever we post the show, you can leave a comment on uh, GameCritics.com. Uh, when Brad posts the show over there, you can always leave comments over there. He monitors Game Critics uh, comments very thoroughly. I do not, but I monitor the email. So take that, Brad. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and zing, we, zing. <laughs> we both monitor Twitter, but I feel bad because every time somebody tweets the show, you always start like a 10-tweet long conversation with them, and I never... I never say anything. It's just you talking to the to to the listener, and I always just like watch the conversation, but I never jump in on anything. So I see them. I just don't jump in unless someone has a specific question for me. Um, but uh, but that's it. We'll be back next week with episode seventy two. Uh, if you want to reach us individually on Twitter, by the way, you can do that as well. Uh, my Twitter handle is my first and last name. Corey Motley, C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. And Brad, what is yours? He is also my name, Brad Galloway, B-R-A-D-G-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y. All A's, no O's. Excellent. Well, that is it. I mean, for Games Talk for episode 71. Next week, we'll be back with episode 72. And if you're not sticking around for banter, we'll see you later. But until then, this is bye from Corey. And bye from Brad. We'll see you next time. up dude um not much i guess um i i have something really dumb that i've been like thinking about that i want to talk about for banter oh it's so it's so stupid it's and it's it's more of like a this is like a shout out kind of thing that i want to discuss very quickly okay but before you say your dumb thing let me just say that i had nothing but dumb things lined up <laughs> and mine are probably dumber than yours. So you please feel free. Go ahead. No shame. Go okay. Ahead. We, this is going to be our dumbest banter yet. So I want to talk about pants in my banter section. <laughs> <laughs> Pant banter. Okay. Go for yes. it. Yes. What about, what about pants? Pa- panter, if you will. Panter. Um, <laughs> pan- a good one. Good one. Well, okay. So as you know, as people listening to the show probably know if they've been listening for a while, um, you know, I got a job like a couple months ago. So I work in um, a university, like in a department university in a university where like, I don't have to dress up every day. It's kind of like a business casual thing. Like, um, like my first or second day on the job, I asked my boss, who I have a different boss now, but at the time, my boss, um, I asked her, like, oh, well, well, I'm standing there in, like, slacks and a button-up shirt and a tie and a cardigan, you know, and I look really nice. That's about as dressy as I get, you know, uh, unless I put, like, a blazer on or something. And and I'm like, oh, well, you know, just, you know, so we can clear the air, like, what is the dress code for the office? Because it's kind of one of those office environments where there's, like, a lot of women in the office. And a lot of, and, like, women have a much um, greater, like, variance of what they can wear in the office. Because with dudes, it's, like, slacks or, like, chinos and, like, maybe a button-up shirt or a polo. 
And then if you want to get fancy, you can like put a tie on or like a vest or a cardigan or like, you know, maybe like a sweater over your button up shirt. And like, that's pretty much it. But women can wear like dresses, they can wear skirts, they can wear blouses, they can wear slacks, they can wear, um, you know, there's just like a, a lot of stuff. So long story short, I asked her what, what we could wear in the office. And of course, she gave me the answer I was expecting. She said, oh, well, what you're wearing is fine. And I was like, yeah, I know. But like, what if I want to dress down a little bit? Like, <laughs> I, I know I look good, bitch. What you well, doing? <laughs> and I did. Like, I looked about as good as I could for work. And because I wanted to ask her because I didn't want to wear a fucking like shirt and tie and cardigan or sweater and socks totally, every single day. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So I asked her and uh, and she was like, oh, pretty much like anything but jeans is fine and I was like okay like you know I can totally I can totally work with that so um I think around the week I got hired or maybe it was like the week when I was interviewing or something I made it a point to go buy a few new pairs of pants because like I'm one of those people who you know like in my transition like through college and into adulthood I you know like I had like a couple of like trusty pairs of slacks and maybe like a pair of khakis or something but because I've never had, like, a big-time office job, I only have enough to sus- to sustain myself for maybe, like, two or three days. Like, I don't have, like, a closet full of slacks. So. Right, right, right. So I went to Target, um, trusty old Target, to go buy some pants. And a few... Did they know you when you walked in? Were they like, hi, Corey? <laughs> no, they did not. If I were still in Omaha, they would. But uh, they do not know me here. <laughs> Although I'm surprised they don't, because I'm at Target, like, every three days here. But... Um, I went in to go pick up some pants and about six months to a year ago, um, this is like really meaningless information, but from someone who worked at Target forever, um, I thought this was really important. And this was after I left Target. They pretty much like dumped all of their first party clothing brands and got like a bunch of new brands to take their places. They used to have like Massimo Red and Massimo Black and Morona and some stores had Converse and they had Exhilaration, which was like a women's only brand. And, you know, each brand, because I worked there for so long, it had its place. It had it, it had its like target audience. Like Massimo Red was kind of like a trendy, like college guy and graphic t-shirt and kind of like comfortable kind of clothing line. And like Morona was like, the like middle-aged dad where you know maybe you're oh, going no. to the office like oh no no i have several marona shirts shut up Don't talk <laughs> no about i have that. i have marona clothes too i mean despite the fact that like i mean marona is just like a different it's like for like for adult men it's not for like 18 year olds and you know there's like a time and a place for that and i have marona clothes and i like my marona clothes but target got rid of all of their first party brands like a year or so ago and now they've basically, for like the men's, de- like in the women's department, they still have, I don't know, like five or six brands or something. But in the men's department, almost everything that's not athletic wear is now a brand called Goodfellow. And it is similar in tone to Morona, but it's like, you know, it has like maybe different cuts that are slightly trendier or like a little more like slim fitting that's not for like, you know, like a middle-aged man kind of thing. And so I was very skeptical because I had not purchased anything from Goodfellow yet. And I went to Target and I did the, you know, god awful, like pick up like 10 pairs of pants and go try them on because I don't know if they're going to fit right. And plus, uh, I've gained. Torture, torture. Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to complain too much because, like, I understand for women, it's a lot more difficult wearing clothes. Because, like, for women, you can go into one store and find a size six dress, and you can go in another store and find a size six dress, and they are two completely fucking different dress sizes. Like, like totally, same thing with totally. pants. But with men, I mean, 
more often than not, you buy a medium shirt here, it's pretty much the same size as it is anywhere else. And usually that goes with pants too. But pants are more accommodating for men because we have a wa- uh, like a waist and a length size. Whereas with women, it's like, oh, you're wearing a size 8 jeans or a size 10 or whatever. So, and as you might guess, as an aging man, I have gained weight since college. So like a lot of my you know, like dressier clothes from college don't fit anymore. So I, and like with slacks, because with jeans, I can still get away with wearing a smaller size because jeans tend to be more forgiving. And sometimes jeans have like an element of stretch in them. But with slacks, you have to like really get your size. So like I'm rolling around in like third, like size, like 30, 30 jeans. And then in slacks, I have to wear maybe like a 32 or a 34. And so it's kind of like, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, great. Like, now I feel like a fat ass because I have to buy, like, two sizes up in slacks. Hey, hey, hey. I wear bigger sizes than that. You're not a fat <laughs> ass, all right? Because that means I'm an even bigger fat ass. And I'm fine, thank you very much. I'm good. Yeah, you, I look good. you are fine, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I can hear the scorn in your voice. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but, I mean, the point of this whole story, the point I'm trying to make, and I'm thinking about today because I wore... I ended up buying, like, two or three pairs of Goodfellow pants whenever I was there. I bought... They have chinos which are like you know it's kind of like what you think of when you think of like khaki pants like they're not like slacks but they're not like jeans either and they have different size or different fits they have like the skinny chino and the slim which are like the skinniest and then they have the slim chino which are like slightly wider and then they have like the i think it's like the straight fit chino which are a little bit those are like kind of like the baggiest ones in the thigh and in the calf area and they have an athletic fit quote unquote which basically means you've got like calf or like thighs that could crush a watermelon and like a, a banging booty <laughs> is, that, is so. that what that means i never knew what that meant <laughs> i had no idea i mean allegedly, i knew they didn't fit me <laughs> yeah like the athletic fit ones are supposed to be like roomier and the thigh and the butt area so um, but I, I bought some pants, and I have to say, like, Target's Goodfellow pants are, like, incredible. I bought a pair of straight chinos, and I bought a pair of skinny chinos, and I thought whenever I was trying them on for the life of me, like, I picked up the skinny chinos, and those are, like, the slimmest ones. And, like, not to brag or anything, but, like, I've been putting on a little bit of weight in my stomach area, but, like, from my thighs down, like, I have pretty good legs. Like, I've got great calves, my thighs are all right, and they're, like, slim. Like, I have not put on any, like, fat weight in my legs at all. It all goes to my cheeks and to my stomach whenever I gain weight. So, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to pick up these skinny chinos and I'm basically going to like not even be able to get a leg in them or like my calves are just going to like hulk out of the sides of them. And I had to get a 3430 to accommodate because they're skinny. They're, you know, a little bit trimmer in the waist. So I had to go up another size. But I have to say my skinny Goodfellow chinos are like some of the best pairs of like work pants I've ever purchased in my life. They fit so well in the waist. And the the waist size being bigger does not um, compromise like the calf or the thigh area because I thought they were going to be baggier because I was getting a size like a size bigger in the waist, but they're like perfectly trim and they like hug my legs really well all the way down and like the waist size is big enough and it's not uncomfortable and I mean, I, you might think that I might be offering up like a coupon code or something after talking about Goodfellow <laughs> pants so much. But Please I, enter coupon code so video games <laughs> at your purchase for $5 off. I mean, they're not, the show is not sponsored by Target, nor is it sponsored by Goodfellow, but I would take the sponsorship money from Goodfellow. So like, basically this is an announcement. I'm guessing that 
most of the people that listen to the show are men and dudes. If you are out there and you need some more work pants or you need some like something that's a little bit nicer than jeans, um, Goodfellow pants at Target are only like twenty five ish dollars a pair, and they are so good. I love my Goodfellow pants so much. Well, that is good information because I need some new clothes, and uh, I mean, you, your 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 banter brings up a couple things for me. I actually wrote down notes because I wanted to bring up a couple different Ooh, points. Okay. So I guess the first thing is, so you know, everybody knows I'm a freelancer, um, non video games freelancer, and I've been that way for many years. And there's kind of, we kind of have like this dress code, sort of. Um, and it's always kind of bugged me. At first, I didn't think anything of it because I was getting into the field. I was new. You don't really question things because you just want to, you know, get work and you just want to blend in, et cetera, et cetera. But now that I'm like an old timer, I've been doing this job for like, you know, like literally like 22 or 23 years or something like that. Um, and I've been around and I am no longer the youngest person in Seattle. I am like one of the old school guys <laughs> in Seattle now. Um, I really have to wonder, like, and, and kind of like what you're saying, like your, your boss said anything but jeans, which makes me think, why? Like, what the fuck does it matter? As long as your jeans are not like torn so that your butt cheeks are hanging out or like they're a safety hazard if you have like raggedy bottoms and you're working your machinery like that makes sense like you don't want to be to be nude at work and you don't want to get caught in machinery so that makes sense but like if you're just in an office and your jeans are not like showing your underwear or anything what the fuck does it matter whether you wear jeans or not who cares it's just like i mean honestly like is there any logistical reason why you can't wear jeans would it interfere with your work in some way uh, it absolutely would not. And what you're saying is something that I've thought about time and time again. And this, like, what I'm going to say next is going to sound incredibly sexist. And I do not mean it to sound this way. But, like, whenever I think about the dynamic between what women can wear in the office and what men can wear in the office, or, like, what's appropriate menswear, it really bothered me for a couple of weeks at um, at the university that I work at. Because, like, there would be, a, like, a, someone in the office that would wear, like, a blouse and like black leggings and i'm like okay like she can wear leggings but i can't wear jeans like it's i don't know it's just really weird to me but yeah my my work attire does not uh, interfere with my job at all and i'm not even like i work with a bunch of like case managers and conduct officers at my university that meet with students regularly so it's kind of important for them to look nice because like they're representing the university and they're meeting with students but I rarely actually, like, meet with students. The only time I meet with them is whenever I proctor exams for them. So, like, most of the time, I'm sitting in my office by myself anyway, behind a desk. You can only see, like, 40% of my body if you walk in my office. So I could be wearing, like, boxer shorts underneath and, like, house shoes underneath my desk. And, like, nobody would ever know. So it, it kind of, yeah, dress code situation kind of bothers me a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it kind of is like that for me. Like, there are certain situations where if I'm going to be in front of people or if I'm going to be talking or I'm giving a presentation, like, okay, it makes sense. You want to dress a little fancy or you want to, like, you know, look the part. That makes sense. But, like, I do a lot of gigs, and I'm sure this is true for many other people, where it doesn't really fucking matter what you wear. Because, I mean, and, like, what what is the cutoff? Because it's not like people who wear jeans are fucking scumbag drug dealers. <laughs> it's like everybody's got jeans. Everybody wears jeans. It's fine. And as long as they're not raggedy falling apart or showing your dick when you walk, who cares? Like, they look fine. You can wear a nice shirt. You look good. They're comfortable. Everybody's got them. So fucking what? And it's only recently that now that I've become kind of senior, uh, one of the older dudes in Seattle doing this job, and I've been around for a while, and my reputation is pretty solid, that I'll, I will start showing up in jeans. Because you know what? 
I just don't give a fuck. Like it used to be slacks and nice shoes and like a really nice shirt. And I'll still wear a shirt that looks good. Um, but like, I'll just show up in jeans sometimes and I'll show up in like, in just like tennis shoes sometimes, because you know what? It doesn't fucking matter. It really doesn't matter. I want to be comfortable. I'm doing a great job for you. And it has nothing to do with what my fucking pants look like. So I just, I'm starting to push back against that a little bit. Uh, because I'm able, I mean, I didn't have that freedom when I was young, but now that I'm older, I feel like I do. And it's like, if someone wants to let me go because I'm wearing jeans, like, fine, let me go. I'll do something else. Cause like, I just, it just, it, it breaks my brain that people like have a fit about stuff like that. It's just in this, in fact, I mean, honestly, I have even turned down jobs because they wanted me to dress up fancy. And I either didn't feel like dressing up fancy or because I didn't have like fancy enough clothes. Like I don't have top of the line business stuff, you know, like I don't have like a suit that I would wear. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm not going to do that job. I don't want to do that job. I'll do some other job where I can just show up in my jeans and it's fine. Money's still green. I still get paid. So yeah, I've turned down a number of jobs cause I don't want to dress up, but it's just, it just, it's weird. Like if you're the spokesperson for somebody, sure. I get it. But if you're just like, like you said, like in an office sitting down, no one can see you from like, you know, mid chest down, or you're not interacting with people. And even if you are, you're not scumbag cause you wear jeans. You're just a person, right? Like just, ugh. fucking hate that whole thing. That's pain in the ass. Yeah, it's it's weird. And like one time I worked uh, I worked a temp job a few weeks for like a, for like an in-house um, editorial department for a like a kind of like an online retailer. And whenever I lived in Omaha and I remember whenever I went in and interviewed and I like got, you know, the job offer, the temp offer and everything. I remember asking someone I think I asked somebody what the dress code was, because that's always that's always really important to me to know the dress code, because I tend to overdress rather than underdress. And and I remember her being like, yeah, we don't have a dress code here. Like we don't meet clients here. There's no customers that come here. So like, you know, people, I would roll into work sometimes with like a shirt and tie and a sweater. And then like the person two cubicles away from me would have like sweatpants and a hoodie on. So that's the kind of work environment that I uh, cherish, I guess. Yeah. I mean, as long as the work gets done and you're polite and you're businesslike or, you know, you get things, you know, accomplished. I mean, like, you know, I spent a lot of time at the Apple store. I didn't work there, but I had a contract there one time. And their, their dress code is like, basically like whatever, like their employees roll in, they've got like all sorts of multicolored hair or shaved hair or all sorts of piercings, jeans that were actually ripped. They had ripped jeans. And they had, it was like, <laughs> as long as you had like the Apple t-shirt with the Apple logo on it, you could wear whatever the fuck else you wanted. And I'm like, see, here's Apple, one of the most successful companies in the world, one of the most popular companies in the world. And they let their people wear what the fuck ever. Like, they're not sweating it. So, like, why do you care if somebody in their back office is wearing jeans? Because, like, newsflash, wearing fucking chinos doesn't make you a high-class dude. It just makes you a guy who bought fucking chinos, you know? Like, who cares? Oh, my pants are brown or they're tan. I'm a much much higher-class person than you, Mr. Blue Pants. So what? God, fuck. Also, Apple has more money than God, so, of course, their employees can dress however they want. Well, yeah, and if it's not hurting Apple, it's not going to hurt nobody else. Who the fuck cares? I mean, I can get help with some dude who's got like an eye patch and a pink mohawk and he's wearing flip flops. My iPhone still works and he's still getting paid. Who cares? You know, like whatever. So anyway, oh, just chill out, people. Just chill I, the fuck I did out not with mean these dress for banter to take up like this much time talking about pants, but I'm sure that you have more important things you want to talk about than pants and dress codes. <laughs> No, I have equally I have equally dumb stuff. In fact, my stuff is more dumb, just like I said at the top of the banter. All right, lay it on uh, really. <laughs> um, not kind of random smattering of things. I spent most of my day yesterday putting wires on my ceiling. Um, I, you were you were at my house before, right? You came over to my house. I have been there. Yes. So it's even more wired and techy than it was for 
people that don't know, and that's probably most people who listen to the show, <laughs> have not been to my house, and please don't come over. Um, my, my apartment that I live in is a really cool apartment, uh, really great, uh, good price for Seattle, good location. Uh, but it was built in, like, late 60s, early 70s, like, before internet and electronics were really, like, a thing. So... With today's wired lifestyle, and especially with me, you know, being a game critic and my wife being a game player, my kid being a game player, we're all like, you know, online all the time and doing all these sorts of things. Like our apartment is super not equipped for like all the electronics that we participate with. And so like I spend a lot of time, despite not really being a tech dude, like trying to get like routers set up and like trying to get like Wi-Fi signal to reach my bedroom because it's like, you know, the, the signal gets blocked and there's no cable back there. And it's like I'm trying to figure things out. And so my wife... um, just uh, is trying to get like a little home office set up because she actually works remotely for her job, which is really cool. Kind of a little dream come true for us. And her Wi-Fi was just like not working. She couldn't get it to reach all the way from like where the router was in comparison to where her desk was. So I'm like, okay, we've already got wires on the ceiling already because where my router is to reach the TV and to reach my wife's PS4, we didn't want wires all over the floor because you trip over them and you don't have like, I fucking hate a thing where people put like wires on the ground and then they put like a rug over it. Because, like, you kick the rug, and then, like, it just feels like you're walking on something when you're walking on the rug because there's wires underneath it. Really fucking awkward, ugly, uh, just shitty. So I'm like, fuck it. We're going to put them on the ceiling because who cares? No one walks on the ceiling. It doesn't matter. Whatever. Um, so I did that before, and so we've got a bunch of wires in the ceiling going, like, all the way across our living room. And then my wife was like, oh, shit, we got to do it again because I'm going to need a wire to run back to the, the back room. So I'm like, oh, man, okay. So we got, like, a bunch of metal hooks. I got, like, some tools. I got up the stepladder. And I spent, like, most of yesterday, like, putting little um, cable holders on our ceiling so it goes, like, from our living room, like, down the hall and around <laughs> the corner into the back room. And we've got, like, these, like, uh, Ethernet cables, like, running all over. I swear to God, like, it looks like I am living in, like, a, an, either, like, an Internet cafe, like, from South Korea, <laughs> or we're cloning people in the back room. Like, it seems like some kind of a weird Blade Runner-ish, you know, noodle shop in the front and then, like, you know, tech tech hub in the back kind of a thing. Oh, but uh, we're doing we're doing the best we can. Although I think the landlord would flip out if he like, came into our place and saw what we were doing in the place. <laughs> but whatever, we're we're wired, we're connected. Um, otherwise, just a couple of really quick things. Um, since we were talking about pants and putting on weight and getting older, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I was thinking of starting a new segment with uh, with you, Corey, called "Aging Gracefully." Oh my god! So, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is my chance. This is my chance to finally work makeup into the show, so let's do this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, we can certainly cue that up, uh, but I was thinking more along the lines of snacks. I wanted to ask you if you had any favorite snacks that you liked now that you might not have liked when you were younger. I know I'm surprising you with this. We didn't prep this beforehand. If you need a minute to think about it, but is there anything that you like now that you think you maybe probably wouldn't have liked when you were a kid? Man, this is one of those situations where, like, I, I know there's probably something, but because I was not expecting this, I can't think of anything. But to be honest with you, I'm not really a big snacker. I mean, I have, like, I really like ice cream. That's, like, my big thing. Like, I always have, like, you know, a, a little thing of ice cream in the in the freezer. But I'm not really a kind of the kind of guy that just, like, sits around and eats, like, chips or eats, like, popcorn or, like, has, like, little snacks. I usually just, like stick to meals and maybe like I could consider like beer my snack, uh, you know, cause I like drink a lot of beer. Um, and I mean the, t the kind of beer that I like is, you know, generally like thicker, darker beer. So it kind of is like a, an actually like a filling thing to drink. Um, 
But I don't, I mean, I don't really, unless there's just something I'm not thinking of. Like, I really like um, wasabi peas and sriracha peas. I think those are great. Um, but I don't really do a whole lot of, like, snacking, really. Well, see, the reason I bring this up is because um, I'm kind of switching to more of a nighttime schedule lately. And so, like, usually uh, at late at night, I'll get a, a craving for something. But, like, in the, back in the day, like, when I was younger, you know, I would have I would have things that were, like, sweeter. Like, I would have, like... Uh, and I'm not a huge snacker either, but like, you know, you just want a little something like, you know, I would have like, you know, like you said, ice cream or I'd have like a, a yogurt that was like a fruit yogurt or something. Or maybe I'd have like, uh, you know, I used to eat like a lot more candy when I was a kid. I used to eat like Twix and, uh, Pixie sticks like way back in the day. I mean, that's literally just pure sugar, <laughs> meaning pure sugar with color on top of it. Um, stuff like that. Um, but I noticed that as I get older, my taste buds have kind of switched from being really sweet to like really salty. And I, I definitely lean way more on like the savory salty side. And I had heard somebody talk about this before and it didn't really mean much to me at the time, but they had said like when they were a kid, they really liked to have like, um, you know, pudding or sugar or something that was really strong in that sense. But now that they're older, they really appreciate like a finely baked bread or something. And I'm like, <laughs> huh. Like that's weird, but okay, whatever old person. But now that I am that old person, I'm like, oh, yeah, right. That bread is so good, right? <laughs> like, so, like, instead of having something sweet, like, I noticed, like, I'll have, um, like, olive oil. Like, I've really de- uh, developed a taste for, like, a really, really fine olive oil, which sounds weird. But when you get, like, this really smooth, uh, very, like, fruity notes to it, and it's got, like, kind of a richness to it. Like, that in itself, you think you just put olive oil on a salad or you cook with it or whatever. But, like, that in itself has a very delicious flavor. Uh, same along, along the same lines as, like... Um, there's this cheese that uh, my wife gets at Trader Joe's, which it's really kind of gross. It's like this really gross kind of uh, smelly dried cheese cracker <laughs> thing where it's literally just a piece of cheese, but they somehow like dehydrate it so that it um, does not need refrigeration. And so you eat it and it's just like this um, weird, salty, gross kind of, it almost tastes like feet a little bit, but like something about it is like really good. Like it tastes gross, but it's also really good. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that sensation where you you taste something and it's nasty, but you want to eat it again. Have you ever had that sensation? The first thing that comes to mind when I think of that is like whiskey, like because whiskey is kind of gross and it kind of burns a lot. But there's just something really like romantic and alluring about just like sitting in your chair with like an one ounce pour of whiskey and like sipping it slowly as you like, I don't know read a magazine or something so I, I like how every you want to talk about snacks and every time you say something i'm like oh alcohol beer whiskey <laughs> oh see there you go there you go we're kind of like same urge but just different expression of that urge i think so yeah you know like like sardines i found this really good brand of sardines and i'm like oh my god these sardines are like the best and i'm like who eats sardines you know kids don't eat fucking sardines you look at those and they're gross you're like they're for bait or for fishing or something you don't eat them but man, I found this like really nice imported Italian sardine brand. And I'm like, I'm just like in heaven. I'm like these sardines are like so good because I'm such a fucking old guy, you know, I love <laughs> sardines. So anyway, I just noticed that like as I get older, um, I just I really have been swinging really heavily towards um, salty, which is a big change from what I would have been as a younger guy. And I guess I've heard that echoed in other places. So, I mean, are you noticing anything like that at all now that we've kind of talked about it a little bit? Well, I think that maybe like. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that, like, I guess as we get older, our, you know, palates kind of change and maybe, like, mature and, um, you know, maybe we start preferring. I mean, because, like, when you're a kid, I mean, maybe I I don't want to speak for everybody here, but, like, you know, when you're a kid, like, all you want to eat is, like, sweet stuff. Like, you want everything sweet. You want candy. You want chocolate. You want ice cream. Because it's, like, 
eating something sweet is easy. It's delicious. You don't have to think about it. It's yummy. And, you know, you just want to eat sweet stuff all the time. But, like, maybe a part of maturing is... Uh, and this goes for anything. I mean, not even just food. But, like, if you're of the right mindset and you, like, are, you know, maturing and you're getting older and you're becoming more experienced with life... Um, you know, you kind of want to eat things that challenge you in a way. And that goes for, like, movies. You know, you want to watch stuff that challenges you. You want to play video games that challenge you because um, you can't take... I mean, you can take the easy road your entire life. But there's something interesting about, um, you know, uh, like, experimenting. And even, like, whenever you're talking about olive oil, because I was thinking about... Um, different things relating different things to olive oil because you know like you said for a lot of people you think of olive oil and you're like oh it's fucking olive oil like what is there to it but like i mean the same thing happens with olive oil as with like wine as with beer as with whiskey as with totally, um, and totally. like like root beer like i know you're a root beer connoisseur like you there's so many different kinds and you really like develop a palate for it and you can really dive in and kind of like fine-tune your tastes and like let those things challenge you rather than just eating or drinking the sweetest thing all the time yeah this is actually oh man i'm really glad we're talking about this because <laughs> believe it or not this is actually going to parlay into our very first topic so i know that people listening to this will have already heard our topic but i'm really thinking about this and how this relates to our very first thing about games um, preservation so uh, i know it's kind of backwards for listeners but for me this has really got me thinking about what we we're about <laughs> to talk about so hopefully this will be um linked to what we're, we're saying and will improve that conversation but i think you're very right i think if you're challenging yourself you're getting new experiences you're opening yourself up to other things div diversifying your palate um experimenting you maybe find something that you really like maybe you find something you don't but at least you tried it broadening those horizons is really really important which is funny um as my son right now he's a really healthy eater and we he eats a lot of fruits and vegetables he's really good i'm um, really proud of him but he is a motherfucking sugar monster if you let him be. Like, and I, it's weird because if you don't give him any sugar, he doesn't think about it and it's fine. And he'll like, oh, I'll have an apple or I'll have some cheese or I'll have a cracker or whatever. But then like if, if there's ever a day where like we end up having like a lollipop, like today we went to Trader Joe's and they gave him a lollipop at the counter. And so he had the lollipop. As, like he ate that thing up like crazy and as soon as he had it he wanted more he's like oh I'm, we have some more sugar can I have some candy can I have some gum oh can I have some more can I have this and that and the other thing and I'm like oh my god stop like you know like so I think sugar is addictive for sure but also his palate like if we didn't focus him on the healthier foods he would eat sugar like 24-7 but hopefully he would grow out of that and like eventually diversify but I you know oddly I have met people who don't ever diversify and I kind of wonder not that they're bad people or you know people have different palates and stuff but it's really weird to me when I meet somebody who's like their only like their big diversification when they go out to eat is like instead of getting chicken strips and fries, they get chicken strips and waffle fries or something <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, do you know any people like that where it's like they're just like they don't really try a lot of different foods or they're just not OK with new foods? Uh, I mean, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Like people who, you know, they go. I mean, it's like a routine. They go to the same restaurant every weekend. They order the same thing every weekend. They're afraid to try something different because it might disappoint them and they look at that as a failure instead of like as a learning experience or like a way to explore new things totally totally yeah i mean i've had my share of bummer meals and i don't like paying for food that's not good i mean I, that sucks for sure but 
I think it is really important to try those different things. And I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I am diversifying a little bit. I mean, I've always tried to eat a wide variety of things, but even now older, I mean, you know, like, like now that I have a preference of sardine brands and I have a preference of <laughs> olive oil brands. And I mean, I guess that's just being fucking old anyway. But anyway, just something interesting to think about. And I, I think we're going to touch back on this again. Um, so hold on to this thought. And when, when we get into the actual games chat, um, I had one more quick thing to share real fast. Um, have you heard of Kerbal Space Program? Just talking about games for a second here. I have. I've seen... It's one of those games that goes on sale like every three weeks on PSN. And I don't think I've ever actually like opened the tile for the game to see what it is. But I can picture the front cover of the game right now as soon as you said the name of it. So I have heard about this game for a long time. I, I've known about it. been aware of it. And my son, who is now almost nine, he's going to be nine in a couple weeks... Uh, he's really into like space and astrophysics and astronauts and exploration and Mars rovers and like the whole thing. Like he's totally going through like this NASA phase, which is cool. Um, and so I'm like, Oh, okay. Well you like physics, you like fuck around games, you like experimenting and you like space. That seems like a really good fit for Kerbal space program because that's exactly kind of what that game is. I've never played it, but I've watched it on YouTube and I've heard a lot of people talk about it. So I was very aware of like what kind of experience it offered. Um, I know it's primarily a PC game, but I picked it up for him on PS4 because he does not play on PC. Uh, maybe he will when he gets a little bit older, but not now. And they, they just had a port of it that was uh, available. So I'm like, all right, we're going to give this a shot. He has been glued to that game for like the last four days. It is like pulling teeth to get him to stop playing that game. He fucking loves that game so much. And it's really interesting because... Uh, the, the physics that they put in there are like real physics. Like it's not like a game game. It's just more of like a simulation. So like if you were to try to like build your own rocket ship and you actually wanted to like land on the moon, like it's not just like, oh, I built a rocket and I went to the moon. Like you motherfucking have to like understand the physics of like launching that fucking rocket. <laughs> and he's, I'm sitting there with him going through the tutorials and I'm going, holy shit, I don't understand any of this. This is like literal rocket science. And he's like, dad, what do we do? And I'm like, dude, I don't even fucking know. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> And so it's like, it's mega complicated. We're slowly, slowly working our way through it. We're trying to figure out like, you know, like they're throwing words at you, like, you know, the apoapsis and the periapsis and then like the, you know, the retro burn and the pro burn. And I'm like, oh my God, what, 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 I don't, what, I don't know. And it's really complicated, but it's really cool because when he finally gets something off the ground, very satisfied, very proud. And I really do appreciate how like, it's so sciencey based. I mean, I wish that they had a better tutorial. Their tutorial is garbage. It's awful. And um, it's buggy as shit on the PS4. It's really, really super buggy, which makes me unhappy because it was a full price game. It wasn't. I didn't buy it on sale on PS4, and it's not a bargain price game. Um, I mean, I don't regret it because he loves it so much, and he's obviously like putting the time into it. He's really enjoying it. But like, they just they they made it run on PS4, but they didn't really do anything to make it like really friendly or to optimize it or make it make more sense with the controller, you know. So that's kind of a bummer and the bugs are a real bummer too but i gotta say it's really cool because he's really learning like literally learning a lot about how space works how planets work how gravity works how atmospheres work it's amazing how much education they've gotten into that game while still making it like a really fun game and he just he just has been eating it up so um i didn't want to talk about it too much during the actual show but just to throw it out there like He's just been loving the shit out of it. So maybe not your jam. And I don't know who's going to hear this if they get all the way to the end of the banter and had to listen to our olive oil and pants talk. <laughs> but if you are if you made it this far and you got a kid or you're interested in space, Kerbal Space Crab program, um, tough to recommend because it's really impenetrable and difficult and buggy and weird, but still very cool experience. 
I'm going to guess that the tutorial for this game is just getting your aerospace engineering, like, PhD. You should get a fucking certificate <laughs> at the end of these tutorials. Like, literally, I'm not kidding. Like, the shit they make you go through, it was like, oh, my God. Like, I just... I had to read and reread and reread and reread, and then I pulled up a bunch of YouTube tutorials because oh I'm like, God. this is not helping. We're like watching shit on YouTube. There's like some guy from Europe with like a really thick accent <laughs> telling us like how to fire the rocket boosters. And I'm like, wait, wait, rewind, tell it again, tell it again. Wait, what's it? What? what? Oh, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. Oh, God. Oh, man. Not the, not the easiest experience. Um, and it's kind of tough because this is like not my jam at all. So it's for me, I'm like, oh, my God, this is kind of like pulling teeth. I wish this was all optimized better, and I wish it was smoother and better written and stuff. But very cool. So we've been doing that a lot, and that's been spending a, a lot of time spent on Kerbal Space Program lately. So anyway, that's all I had for banter this week. Man, you got anything else? Do you want to deep dive on Annihilation while we're both here? Oh, fuck. Yes, I forgot. Yes, I forgot. How dare you? Absolutely. I actually wrote it. Even, I even wrote it in the notes. It's even in my notes. Uh, and I put it a little bit further down, but it is in my notes. Yes. Annihilation. <laughs> go. Let's talk about it. You saw it, what, yesterday? Day before? Uh, it was day before. It was on Sunday. And I'm assuming we're going to spoil this, right? Yeah, I feel like... So I'll put it in the notes, but this this will literally be, if you're listening to the show, this is the very, very, very last topic last you'll be listening thing. to. So if you haven't seen Annihilation, which is Alex Garland's new movie, writer-director of Ex Machina, writer of 28 Days Later, starring Natalie Portman, um, I would say go see it. I recommend it. But if you don't want anything spoiled, tap out now. We'll see you next week for episode 72. Okay, heads up. Corey just gave me the full-on spoiler warning. We're going to talk about everything about Annihilation, so please bail if you don't want to be spoiled. Final warning. That's it. So, Corey... Tell us, uh, I know what it's about, but for people who have listened this far, I feel like we should uh, we should fill them in. What is Annihilation? What's it about, basically? Annihilation is, um, it's based on a, it's based on a book, which is in a trilogy of books, but the movie is only based on the first book in the trilogy. And I'm not sure if there are plans to do the other books as movies or not, but um, uh, it is about a, <clears throat> oh gosh, um, it's about an entity that comes out of space and hits the earth uh don't really know what it is maybe it's meteor maybe it's some kind of extraterrestrial thing it hits a lighthouse and sort of like a remote part of the world i can't even remember where it is now that i think about it um i thought it was like florida or some shit is it for is it not florida i i can't remember i don't know i mean there was like alligators and shit i just kind of assumed (laughs) it was florida and everybody was american so i assumed it was america I mean, that could be wrong, though. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, it's possible that it's such an important thing that they shipped people from, like, America to get there. Yeah, that's very true. It could be. It could be. Well, it's somewhere. It is is somewhere. This is true. Um, Basically, so Natalie Portman is the main character, and her husband is a sergeant in the military, and he goes on some, like, big covert, like, deep cover mission He's been gone for a year, uh, absolutely no contact with her or anyone. So she just kind of sort of rightfully assumes that he has died or that he's never coming back or that something happened. So at the beginning of the movie, she's trying to move on with her life. She she was in the military for seven years. She's now a professor at Johns Hopkins. She teaches uh, like cellular biology or something like that. So she's, um, you know, in tune with combat from her military years. She's incredibly smart. And... 
she is in the process during one scene of repainting part of the house and her husband, uh, who uh, Oscar Isaac plays him in the movie, um, his name is Kane, Sergeant Kane. Um, he basically comes home with no, um, no, no explanation, no phone calls, no nothing. He just shows up and he walks in the house. And so she is really, really excited that he's there. And then after about 15 minutes, she starts to realize that maybe something is wrong with him. Like maybe he has PTSD or maybe, um, you know, he has some kind of mental disorder because he's not really like that affectionate. He's not really answering her questions very well because she wants to know where he was and what he was doing and if he could tell her anything. And it turns out that he was sent to go investigate where this uh, thing hit the world. And whenever it hit this lighthouse area, um, it created this barrier around it, which they called the shimmer in the movie. And it's basically like, it's kind of like a force field that looks like it's made of like shimmery mucus kind of. And I mean, like, am I wrong? No, no, you're right. I just, I didn't think of it that way, but no, you're totally right. I mean, it's kind of what it looks like and, or almost maybe like a bubble in a bathtub or something. Like it just kind of has that, like that barrier look to it. And, um, and so she, he starts like going into a seizure in the house. They, she calls 911. They go to uh, the emergency room. But on the way to the emergency room, all of these, like, black ops vehicles, like, hijack the, the ambulance, and they knock her out, and they take her to this remote research facility. Well, the research facility is right on the edge of the Shimmer. She meets with a psychologist, and they discover that the Shimmer's boundaries are expanding, and there's been several teams that they've sent in. No, only one person has come out alive, and it was uh, Natalie Portman's husband, and he didn't turn out that well because he, like, went into a seizure right after he got home. So, you know, so much for that. Um, and they decide that they're going to send another team and a team of all women. It's Natalie Portman. It's Jennifer Jason Lee. It is um, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, and some other actress that I've never heard of before. And, <laughs> and I mean, it's like, it's like a list and then it's like some other woman that I don't know who she is. But um, that said, they're all great. And it's really cool to see a, a diverse cast of like almost all women in this movie. So they go into the shimmer to try to figure out what's going on, whether it's like an alien presence or whether it's something. And I mean, I mean, it's like hard sci-fi, like capital H hard sci-fi. They get in the shimmer. They discover that within the boundaries of the shimmer, they kind of like lose. Um, sometimes they lose like perception of time and space. Um, like the DNA of everything in the shimmer is like changing. Like there's different kinds of flowers that have nothing to do with each other that are like growing out of the same plants. There's like an alligator that's this weird like mutated thing. And there's like a bear that's this weird mutated bear animal. And and basically it's just like fucking weird. Um, and I'm not going to say any more than that. I know we're going to talk about the ending whenever we get to the discussion, but that's like the big nutshell preface of the movie. Yeah, totally. I think that's really fair. I mean, I went into this movie not knowing anything about it. I, Me and my wife, sometimes um, we like to just go see a movie just out of the blue and just try our luck and just see what happens. Um, and this was one of those times when neither one of us knew anything about it. I mean, I knew Natalie Portman was in it, and I knew it was kind of like a sci-fi movie, but like that's literally all I knew about it. So we went into it basically blind. Um, so that's a pretty good summation. I mean, I think, um, yeah, yeah, I think that's fine. I don't think you left anything out there. I mean, um, 
I mean, I have feelings about it. I suspect you have feelings about it. I mean, what did you, without jumping right to the end, what did you think about, you know, what do you, what do you think about it? Uh, I mean, I, I liked it. I liked it and I would recommend it to people as long as they know that this, this is like the perfect ex- example of a movie that is like, that goes against the grain of like your average, like Hollywood action movie or a Hollywood, like, um, you know, like, like low barrier for entry movie. Like this movie is, I mean, it's like, it's smart. It's either smart or it thinks it's smart. I'm not sure which one it is. I think, I think it thinks it's smart is where I fall down on that. But, uh, I mean, and, uh, I mean, I recommend it and I think it's good and it's really beautiful and it's really intense and like the acting's great. And like, I love Natalie Portman. Like I've been a big Natalie Portman fan for a long time. Um, but I mean, really like what makes slash breaks the movie is the last like 20 minutes of it, which I mean, I'm sure we're going to discuss it because it's kind of one of those movies where you can tell that it's constantly building to something because the objective for the all-female team that goes into the Shimmer is to find the lighthouse. They want to get to the lighthouse. They want to see what the thing is that basically caused this Shimmer barrier, whether, you know, I mean, maybe it's a meteor, maybe it's an alien, maybe it's something. And so the whole movie is building to this reveal of what is in the lighthouse, what what thing hit it, what is causing all of this, like, destruction um, in the movie. And it's totally one of those movies where you're going to walk away thinking the ending was like so like interesting and intellectual and fabulous. Or you're going to walk away thinking that the ending was total fucking bullshit and that you want your money back and that it was a waste of two hours (laughs) of your life. And I suspect that I know which camp you fall into, Brad. Well, I agree with most of what you said. I mean, I think the first three quarters of the movie was really strong. I mean, I think it sets up a very intriguing premise. I was down with the girl power. I I didn't realize it was like a girl power movie, but it really was. And that was really cool. We were down with that. I mean, the performances were strong. Um, Very interesting to watch them kind of explore the shimmer and go into it and see. I mean, kind of the basis, like one of the revelations that they eventually come to. And for me, which is one of the only ones that they really clearly define, is that one of the effects of the shimmer is that it's somehow like mixing DNA of everything that's within its boundaries. So like, like you said, like the flower, like multiple breeds of flower were kind of becoming one flower, but like, uh, the animals were kind of like having other parts of the animals like mixed in with them. Um, there was a, a plant that looked like a person, but it was only a plant, but it was like in the shape of a person because it had like some people DNA that was giving it the instructions to grow with like a head and shoulders and legs and arms, even though it was just a plant. So that was like a really cool premise and actually kind of creepy when you think about it, because if you sit there for any length of time and think about God, like what would it be? if we just randomly started mutating, like we wouldn't really even be human anymore. What would we be as a species? What would happen if we woke up and we were like half plant or if we were <laughs> half dog or what, you know, like what would that even mean for us as a people? Like that would be really a hard question to answer or something really to think about and really, I mean, really scary and unsettling. Um, I mean, it, to like kind of take away the very definition of what humanity is. So that was really cool. I liked that all very much and it all was, was pretty good, basically pretty good until the end. Um, <laughs> But that's what I really felt like they kind of ran out of answers. I have not read the book this is based on, and I heard the book was very challenging in the similar sort of way where I heard the author kind of plays with ideas and plays with words and leaves things very ambiguous and doesn't really nail anything down. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. Um, And that's kind of how I felt about the end. I felt like when they finally get to the lighthouse and they're supposed to like have the big reveal and really kind of, you know, get to the point of what's going on. 
I just felt like there really wasn't a point. I felt like there was a lot of open-ended, very ambiguous, ill-defined things happening. And which is which is okay in itself, because I mean when you deal with alien things, one of the things that really frustrates me is when writers attribute things that are innately human to aliens. Like the aliens either look like people, except for they got crinkly foreheads or they're blue or something, or they have the same sort of like desires for power or for money or something. I don't think that's going to be true. I think that if we ever do meet um, extraterrestrials from other planets, I feel like we are probably going to be like alien on a very base level. Like maybe we won't even be able to understand our motivations. I don't think they will ever look like us. I don't think that we will have much in common except for maybe perhaps the desire to explore. So I think it's fine to have like an alien encounter where you just really don't understand this other creature and you don't have much common ground. You probably don't communicate with it, et cetera, et cetera. But I just felt like a lot of what happened at the end was just like, well, this thing happened because, and we don't really know why. And this other thing happened and this happened. And then at the end, it kind of just, uh, just none of it like really came together. I mean, I guess <laughs> is, is it okay to go and talk about what happens? You ready to talk about that? Yeah, let's. Okay, so if you've been listening up to this point, we're going to talk about the full-on ending spoiler situation. So let's dive in. So this is the end. So what happens is they get to the lighthouse. Um, one of the things that's kind of bugged me about the movie up until this point is like they don't quite explain like why they're losing time. Like it seems to be kind of an important point early in the movie and they kind of just forget about it and they don't talk about it anymore, which kind of bugged me. And I thought that was kind of weird. They get to the lighthouse and then there's like an impact, I don't know, impact zone where the, the thing hit. It becomes like a tunnel. There's like this underground little like alien chamber and they go inside there and there's just like this before they go into the alien chamber, there's like a video monitor or I'm sorry, a video camera. Uh, with a videotape, and I'm sorry, that battery would have been dead. Like, that battery had been in that camera for, like, more than a year. That battery would not have been uh, been able to uh, play when they got there. But anyway, it's like the equivalent of finding, like, an, of an audio log in a video game. When I, was, I kind of <laughs> rolled my eyes a little bit. So Natalie Portman watches it. It turns out that it's, like, her husband, and her husband killed himself in the lighthouse with a phosphorus grenade, which, for people that don't know, like, puts out this, like, intense burst of, like, really, uh, like, super super hot heat it just burns everything um so he killed himself there but then the person who was filming him was like a clone of him and so you're like well wait what's going on who is he clearly this clone must have been the husband that showed up at natalie portman's house because her real husband is dead and his skeleton is still here so he's clearly dead and then natalie portman finds like this alien which is like this weird pulsing energy alien thing and then it becomes like a like a doppelganger of her and it like mirrors her movements and they're kind of like dancing around in the lighthouse and it's just <laughs> copying her and she just doesn't know what's going on. And then she like finds another phosphorus grenade and she explodes it on the alien and the alien burns up and dies. And then the lighthouse burns and then she walks out of there. And then at the very end, she goes back to talk to who she thinks is her husband, who is actually the clone and she hugs him. And then she, and when she hugs him, like, his eyes turn alien and her eyes turn alien, but they haven't shown her to be a clone of any kind. So, I mean, I, what were your what were your thoughts about this ending, Corey? I definitely have feelings, but what, what, what were your feelings about the ending? I, oh, man. Okay, so, like, whenever... So, like, okay, so there's, like, a rule uh, in, in, in every, like, creative, creative medium. And, like, or something that I think I've said on the show probably a bunch of times, because I talk about this a lot whenever we talk about horror video games. And I think that something that I say a lot is that, you know, the only thing scarier than something happening is something not happening. And the same is true for 
the only thing more interesting than something being explained is something not being explained. Like, cause once you have, when you have a mystery, it's interesting as long as you know, the, the impetus for the mystery is like interesting enough. And then as soon as the mystery gets explained or gets shown, it's suddenly like not interesting anymore. And that's like kind of what happens here because like she climbs down into this like alien cave thing and <clears throat> there's like, I mean, like the the a. I'm just I'm just gonna keep calling it the alien thing because I'm gonna assume yeah, yeah, that it's go, like go, an go, a, go extraterrestrial. Go so the alien thing, it looks like, oh god, it looks like a like one of the ghosts from Destiny, kind of like. Oh yeah, it kind of does. And it, it kind of does. But it's like, yeah, but it it's like not mechanical. It's like fully organic, and it has yeah, like, like a bio. little like kind of like hole in the middle. And then its body thing starts kind of like swirling and making all these patterns. And it kind of looks like a black hole that's kind of like, um, like, I don't know, like eroding itself or something. And then like, you know, she climbs back out, like you said. And then the thing, because there's like a theme that's set on kind of early in the movie about how like, uh, about cells, how whenever cells, um, you know, they clone themselves. Like whenever cells multiply, like they basically just double themselves. Um, that's like one of the first things they talk about in the movie. And like later on in the movie, when they're in the shimmer, she sees these two like kind of like deer looking animals and they look like clones of each other and they move at the same time, like clones of each other. So, I mean, I'm guessing that whatever alien force hit the earth, I mean, on top of like the cells mutating, it's also causing things to kind of clone each other. And like, so, like, the alien thing, like, starts, I mean, it starts off not really looking like her. It kind of slowly forms, like, two arms and two legs, and it kind of has this, like, greenish color. And as Natalie Portman starts moving more, it starts moving more, and, like, it slowly kind of, like, looks like her, and eventually it looks exactly like her. It has, like, her face, and it has everything. But what I don't get is, like, it was mimicking all of her moves... And, like, Natalie Portman tries to hit it with the camera tripod, and then, therefore, the clone hits her, like, with her fist. And then they, like, smash each other against the door, and the clone is trying to, like, kind of, like, smother her. But then, like, Natalie Portman grabs the phosphorus grenade because her husband, who killed himself with the phosphorus grenade, like, there was another one there. Like, he had, like, a belt of them. And she, like, picks up the grenade, and she pulls the pin... And then just hands it to the clone. The clone just holds it. And then Natalie Portman runs away. And I don't understand why the clone stopped mimicking her movements there. Because technically, the clone should have, like, run out the door with her. Or should have, like, held on to Natalie Portman's hands, like, to keep the phosphorus grenade there. So they would be doing, like, mirroring the same movements. And so, like, I can't, I did, I wasn't quite sure where the barrier was of, like, when does the, the clone keep moving with her? When does the clone stop moving with her? And then, like, you know, at the end of the movie, kind of, like, the stinger on the end, like you said, is whenever Natalie Portman goes back, or, like, the clone, I guess. Because, I, I mean, at the end of the movie, you don't know who it is. You don't know if it's the real Natalie Portman that got out of the Shimmer or if it's the clone Natalie Portman that gets out of the Shimmer. But you're led to believe it's the clone because, like, her eyes do like the shifty clone thing at the same time that Oscar Isaacs do. So like the end of the movie is basically like, okay, we have these two like alien clone things like out in the real world. And then it kind of like cuts to black. If you choose to believe that that's what happened, that that like their actual 
um, like the two like extraterrestrial clone people out in the world. And I mean, that in and of itself is like, you know, kind of an interesting premise, I guess, like, ooh, like the clones got out, like, what are they going to do? Um, but I, I don't know. I'm just like, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I mean, the ending was underwhelming. And I mean, I don't think it's a bad movie, but I just think that like, it's totally one of those movies that hinges on the last like 20 minutes, like be like the reveal being great or the reveal being shitty. And it was just like, one of those situations where I was just like, that's it. Like, that's what happens. Like we've been building to the source of the shimmer for the whole thing. And like, it turns into some like weird CGI clone of Natalie Portman. And then she runs off and then like, suddenly she's back in the real world. And like, and, and like, did you notice Brad that like the, like sometimes in the movie, Natalie Portman had the tattoo on her forearm and sometimes she didn't. And like, was the tattoo yeah. like, did, did the clones like make the tattoos on themselves? Like, I, I don't, I'm sure that there's like, people out there who are smart enough to understand this, or maybe people out there who think they're smart enough to understand this, who could probably like explain it better to me. But uh, there's just a lot of stuff that I had trouble understanding and getting behind. But up until totally. that point, I enjoyed it. But like, I don't know at the end, I was just kind of like, Hmm, I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. The first three quarters were really strong, but like when they get to the end, this, it totally falls prey to that kind of like that art house tendency to like, not only to not to not explain, but to also throw in a lot of elements to kind of confuse you or to misdirect you. And a lot of these things just didn't really make sense. Like, you know, kind of like you said, like we did see evidence of clones being made and that that was fine. If that was what the alien did, I could understand that. And that's fine. But it also blended DNA and it also like made them lose time. And it also, you know, did all these weird things like it didn't seem to have a very consistent pattern to what it did. And so I'm like, well, wh well, what is the point of this alien? I mean, this alien does everything. It's totally <laughs> playing random chaos the environment like it plays with time it plays with clones it plays with gene splicing it does everything like it's it seemed really really inconsistent and then like you said at the end uh, i mean also natalie portman had the tattoo sometimes sometimes she didn't they didn't explain that which to me again is like another art house thing of like ooh, what does this mean we know you notice this but what does it mean we don't know we're not gonna explain it think about it it's deep and then at the end it just didn't not like none of that made sense to me um because, like you said, she, the clones stopped copying Natalie Portman when it became narratively convenient for Natalie Portman to leave. <laughs> but it's like, I mean, it was copying her so much it was killing her because it was crushing her against the door, right? Like, they both were moving in the same direction and the door wasn't open. And Natalie Portman is moving forward and the clone is moving forward. And the clone is crushing her because Natalie is between the door and the clone. So you're like, oh, wow, this thing is totally copying her movements. But then all of a sudden, well, when I need you to hold this thing for me real quick, you just do it. <laughs> I mean, that didn't make any fucking sense. Also, I had a real serious problem because uh, phosphorus grenades are fucking deadly. I mean, they are super deadly. The use of phosphorus is actually banned in the real world because it is so destructive and uh, devastating. So not only does, uh, what's his name, have a phosphorus grenade and kills himself with it, the, the alien that is filming him is like four feet away from him. I'm sorry, but when a phosphorus grenade grows off, that entire fucking room is going to be a giant, like, white fireball. Like, I, how did that clone even survive? Um, so that didn't make any sense at all. And then when Natalie Portman goes in there and she sets off the phosphorus grenade the second time, it totally sets the alien on fire. It sets, like, the lighthouse on fire. The whole thing fucking burns and it all dies and the entire thing dies and the whole lighthouse just collapses. And I'm like, how the fuck did the second phosphorus grenade kill him when the first <laughs> one didn't? That doesn't make any fucking sense. And on top of that, they never show um, Natalie Portman being cloned at all. Like, we, we, we see the alien dying. We see it burning in the lighthouse. There's no other 
opportunity for her to become a clone unless they're saying that she has become, I don't know, like what, internally corrupted? And then she became an alien that way? Like, is that what they're saying? Like, I guess it's really unclear. It just, it just seemed like there was way too many things happening that were all kind of slightly different and it didn't seem very consistent uh, or well thought out. Um, now, so I'm going to throw this out to you, Corey. Have you ever seen um, The Thing from John Carpenter? I have not. Oh, damn it. Okay, you got to go watch that. Go watch <laughs> that. On, like I'll ASAP. Let's pause. I'll go watch oh, it. Yeah, pause, pause. <laughs> go watch it right now. So I, I love The Thing from John Carpenter. That is like one of the, like the most classic horror movies for me of all time. I love that movie so much. It's, it's one of the classics. And I think that movie has a lot in common with Annihilation. I'm actually surprised that I don't see more people talking about that. Because, um, I mean, I don't want to spoil you on, on the thing, and I think you should go see it, but, like, the aliens that are that are in Annihilation and the thing have a lot in common, but I think the one that's in the thing makes a lot more sense, it's a lot more consistent, and it makes um, the whole movie kind of come together. And when you get to the end of the thing, even though it may not end the way you think it does, what happens makes perfect sense with what's been shown all the way along. So... It, there's none of this art house bullshit where they're, they're trying to misdirect you or obfuscate what's going on. Like it makes sense. It's an alien. It, it does not communicate. It has its own desires. They're not friends or anything like that, but like it, you can, it, it follows rules that are well-established within the film, um, which I think is also something that happens. Like when you make a, a work of fiction, if you want to write anything or make a movie or anything like that, like you have to be very internally consistent. If you break your rules, after you've kind of established them with your viewer or your reader, they feel kind of betrayed at the end. And that's kind of how I felt at the end. I felt like they were just doing whatever at the end rather than really sticking to what they'd established. And it made me feel very um, dissatisfied and frustrated. So it's not like I needed a little bow on the end of everything. I mean, I'm fine with like a kind of an enigmatic ending or something, but I felt like this was just like, we're going to throw all the pasta at the wall, whatever sticks sticks. And we're just going to wrap it. And we're going to call it really artistic and people like me as a director, because I'm really smart. So they're not going to question it too much. And if anything is wrong, they're going to think they don't understand it instead of blaming me. So it's all good. And I'm like, I just, mm, I just felt like that last 20, 30 minutes, I really wish they would put that tighter because I really would have liked this movie a lot because the first three quarters is great. But that ending, you know, we just walked out of the film, me and my wife, and I'm like, what do you think? And she's like, liked it till the end. And I'm like, yeah, I liked it till the end too. So yeah, I, for me, I, I mean, it was well made in general. I don't think that would really recommend it though, because I feel like the, the disappointment at the end really kind of cancels out the good stuff. Um, and I would, I would point people towards other similar films, like, like the thing, for example, is a much better, um, example of that exact kind of movie. Maybe this is a case of like the movie itself serving as like a meta narrative about how, like when like extraterrestrial life hits the earth or, you know, whenever we meet extraterrestrials or something like that. Like, maybe they will be able to do everything, and maybe it will be compl completely unpredictable, and maybe they won't live by any certain set of rules, and the movie is just trying to demonstrate that. I mean, possible. Totally possible, because who knows what life exists in the universe? Who knows what other rules exist on other planets? Uh, or it's just really up-your-own-ass filmmaking, which <laughs> I think is probably more likely. Uh, <laughs> but six of one, half dozen the other, who knows? Who knows? Um but, I mean, I don't know. I mean, for me, I, I think I probably would not recommend it, even though I did think it was fairly well made and had some good points to it. But that disappointment just really soured me. Would you recommend this to other people? I would hesitantly recommend this to other people. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, man. I am bantered out. You got any more banter? God, I hope not, because we have already been talking for like an hour. This is like Mondo. Okay, cool, <laughs> cool. Let's wrap this banter and let's talk about some games. Let's talk about some games.